highs and lows. So interesting because you come across like a nice guy, but you're really a piece of. Now George struck back. Now, now George fought back. Yeah, they make good soup. <laughs> He's ready to go, and there he goes. Smithies, the big title fight is one of those rare occasions that I savor the sights, the sounds, and yes, the smells of other men. Your friend Harvey is bigger than you. I have a friend Shirley that's bigger than you. Spinal. Stop talking now, attention. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Ringside Seat Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Detloff. I'll be joined in a few minutes by my guest, Wally Matthews. In the meantime, this podcast is brought to you by Ringside Seat Magazine, The Art of the Sweet Science. Issue number nine is in the works right now with stories about On the Waterfront, Jack Root and the Origins of the Light Heavyweight Division, the famous Fan Man incident from Bo Holyfield 2, Sonny Liston, Ruiz Joshua 2, and the artist Thomas Aikens, plus book reviews, columns, and more. Head over to ringsideseatmag.com now. Subscribe and get a $5 discount plus the Ringside Seat Review 2019 free. Also, back issues of Ringside Seat, issues 1 through 7, are now just $5.99. Again, go to ringsideseatmag.com. My guest on this episode of the Ringside Seat Podcast is Wallace Matthews. Uh, Matthews is an award-winning boxing writer who has covered boxing for Newsday, uh, the New York Post, the New York Times, and various other publications since 1983. A former president of the Boxing Writers Association of America, uh, Matthews has served as a color commentator for ESPN, Showtime, Versus, CBS, and NBC, for which he worked on two Olympics. He's hosted a boxing radio show on Sirius XM and was awarded uh, the Nat Fleischer Award for Excellence in Boxing Journalism in 1994. Wally, welcome to the Ringside Seat Podcast. Thanks for having me, Bill. You know, no truth to the rumor that I was at the uh, John L. Sullivan, Jim Corbett fight. <laughs> good for you. Yeah, right after I, that is when I started. Right after that, huh? Okay, so you've been around a while. Good for you. I'm going to start, Wally, if you don't mind, by asking you how you got into sports writing in general and boxing writing in particular. Uh, I'll tell you what. I, I fell in love with boxing from when I was a kid. I mean, my dad was a huge boxing fan. He loved Floyd Patterson for hmm. some reason. I mean, <laughs> that was reason. his favorite fighter. And I must say that, you know, like one of my, my happiest moments was being able to introduce him to Floyd Patterson at oh, one of my boxing writers dinners back in the eighties. And he yep. was just so thrilled. But um, one of my earliest memories, I got to tell you, I guess it must've been the rematch between Patterson and Liston. And mm. my dad wanted to listen to it. It was on the radio live. And my dad was a tinkerer. And I think the transistor radio that's we had back in those days sure. uh, wasn't working. And he like took it apart. He was trying to fix it on the kitchen table oh. and uh, he, he just could not get it to work. So he said to my mother, I'm going to run downstairs and listen to it in the car. We lived on the fifth floor in Astoria. It was a walk-up. Right. He ran down. He started the car. By the time he got the radio going, the fight was over because it ended right. the first round. Uh, but, uh, I mean, that was my earliest memory. I remember him talking about that fight. And um, I have two brothers who are a little bit younger than me, so I picked them as my opponents. I was a very good matchmaker. Uh, we, <laughs> we used to fight all the time. And one day my dad came home, and I must have been – I swear, maybe four years old, <laughs> came home with two pairs of boxing gloves and said, nice. if you guys are going to fight, use these. And nice. I swear, ever since then, I was into it. I just loved the way the gloves felt. Yep. I loved putting them on. I like smelling them. I mean, you know, you know like the way yeah, the yeah. smells and all. Yep. So I was always into it from then. But how that hooked up with my newspaper career is another story altogether. Um, you know, I teach a class in journalism now, and they always ask me, how did you get started? And I say, I'll tell you how I got started, but this is not the way you're going to get started, I hope. Right. Um, you know, I went to college for, uh, a little bit later in life because I was boxing. 
until I was about 23, I hadn't gone to college yet because I was just kind of kicking around and yeah, yeah. In the gym every day and just, you know, hoping I was going to do something else in my life. Uh, so I started to go to college uh, in 1983, CW Post out here on Long Island. And mm -hmm. uh, I was a liberal arts major, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Yep. Always liked newspapers, always liked sports and loved boxing, you know, and I, and I could write a little bit. Right. So as um, college went along, I realized, you know, this writing comes easy to me. You know, other right. stuff doesn't come easy. Math doesn't come easy to me. Science does not come easy to me, but I can write, you know, so I kind of liked it. And I applied for an internship at Newsday just for the hell of it. You know, and I, I actually when they, they asked what preference, you know, where would you like to work? I wrote politics. Really? I wrote politics. Yeah. Interesting. So um, I wound up not getting the internship. Some some schmuck named Tom Verducci got it instead. <laughs> so, you know, and ever since then, no, actually, he, he's, a, he's a very good friend and he certainly deserved it, as history has shown. But I got um, hired to uh, work as a part-timer in the sports department. Wow. And, uh, you know, I was basically taking scores on the phone of high school games. I didn't really give a rat's ass about high school football or right, right. Know, field hockey. Or anything, but this is what I did. But I really wanted to write boxing. Um, so I figured, look, if I'm not going to be in politics, I'm going to try to write boxing. And They're I, similar, I, right? They're similar. Simil yeah, very similar well, genres. It's yeah. little, you know, I had no idea how similar they were. Yeah. And I befriended Bob Waters, who was the uh, boxing writer at Newsday, legendary guy. And for right. your listeners who don't know who he is, he's one of three people in the United States who picked a guy named Cassius Clay to beat Sonny Liston. There you go. And he was right. He was just an absolute sage in boxing. He actually boxed with Barney Ross in the Army. Wow. Uh, yeah, there's actually a funny story about that. Uh, they had made an agreement beforehand that, you know, they would go nice and easy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think at the end of the first round, Waters got a little happy and yep. he hit him with a left hook, and he did. And uh, Barney Ross said, just for that, I'm going to fucking kill you next round. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> he goes back to his corner, and the bell rings, and he doesn't get off the stool, and the ring announcer <laughs> Nice. that private waters has retired with an injury <laughs> nice so that, yeah, but he was a great guy he he mentored me and he was um he was kind of older and not in great health and uh whenever he didn't want to do something he would uh he would ask you know the the sports editor send me he'd say dick cool. send the kid oh so, that's cool uh, yeah yeah so i went and did it and I, I showed some aptitude for it and after a couple of years you know they, they hired me but newsday had told me the day i walked in there you're never gonna get hired here because at the time they were a top 10 paper in the country. They weren't right. Pulitzer's. They, you know, doing all kinds of investigative reporting. They thought they were like the Washington Post. And they basically said, you know, we hire part-timers. You go out in the field and go work in Allentown, go work in Hartford. And if you're <laughs> any good, we'll bring you back. Right. You know, so I got very lucky in that I got hired because I was able to specialize in something that nobody else did. And when Bob Waters retired, there really was nobody else there to write boxing. They said, wow. you know, let's hire this schmuck. And they did. That's great. Yeah, and it's but it's really not a, a traditional path at sure, all. Sure, sure, right. You know, and I, you know, I wouldn't recommend to my students, you know, just try this and be friendly. <laughs> yeah, friendly yeah, exactly. Replace me or something. Yeah, wait, for, go go somewhere and wait for the old guy to die. Yeah, and find a place in. where yeah. there's an old guy who writes what you want to write. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Push him down a flight of stairs. That. That's right. <laughs> so that, that's basically how I did it, and then from there, nice. um, you know, I. I was living the dream for, you know, a good 10 years. That's cool. Tell me about, and that's great that, you know, a lot of famous journalists got their, and famous writers got their starts in journalism in, in unconventional ways, sure. right? Uh, Ernest Hemingway, right? right? And, and H.L. Mencken, some of the greatest writers ever, worked right. for newspapers in, in ways Hemingway, that... Uh, Hemingway wisely said, if you write for a newspaper too long, it'll destroy you as a writer. Yeah, <laughs> and he's probably right, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely right. 
tell me about uh, your amateur boxing experience. While I'm okay, so what? Um, I, I always wanted to, to be a boxer. You know, mm -hmm. when I was a kid, I just loved. They were my favorite fighters. Sure. I mean, my favorite athletes. Right, right. Now, I was a baseball fan, football fan, all of that stuff. But there was nothing like to me like boxing. And uh, you know, I really loved Joe Frazier. I loved uh, the, you know because of my dad. I I, I liked Floyd Patterson quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, it took me a while to appreciate Muhammad Ali because he was just so different. From right. the athletes of those days, you know, and, and the men of those days. I mean, you have to remember back then, men were, were expected to be quiet, silent. Yep. Yep. That, that was what, what signified strength. Right, right. right. Like yep. I grew up in an Italian family. The men didn't yeah, oh, say yeah. a word. Oh, yeah. No, they didn't say a goddamn word. Yep, and yep. then, you know, this guy comes out and he's screaming and yelling, and it just didn't seem like, you know, I don't know. He just didn't fit the image of, of Sure, whatever. sure. Joe Frazier fit the image. Yep. Me. So, anyway. Um, I mean, from the time I was like 13 or 14, I would shadow box in my room, mm -hmm. like, you know, 15 round fights. I would make out that I was Frazier and I was fighting Ali or I was Ali and I was fighting Quarry and I would right, try right. to change my style for each of these guys. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but um, <laughs> I just always wanted to do it. And sure. uh, I would sucker my friends and brothers into boxing with me. You know, we, we had these gloves and we were constantly upgrading gloves. And then uh, when I was 19, I finally decided, you know, what the hell, man, I'm going into a gym. I'm going to try this. And um, I went into a gym in Brooklyn. And I must tell you, walking up the three flights to that gym was the hardest thing I ever did. I was scared to death. I was like, you know, what's going to happen? I'm like, you know, this guy's going to beat the shit out of me. They're going to laugh at me, but you know, whatever. And I went up there and it turned out to be the greatest thing I ever did in my life. Really yep. did changed everything it really did it changed the way i saw myself it got me into great shape uh it gave me confidence in everything i did i'll tell you bill anything that i did to this day i'm 62 years old to this day anything i do that seems daunting i always look back and say you know what you walked up those three steps you can do this so yep. um that first year I, I started in december and the golden gloves in january i always wanted to fight in the golden gloves every sure. year i would see the ad in the daily news and I fill it out, but I wouldn't send it in. You know, nice. Yeah, yeah, you know, I got gotcha. you. Wanted to, you know. So finally, I went in in December. I had about five weeks of training. I said, "I'm going in. You know, I'm, I'm going to give this a shot." And, nice. Uh, and I, I was doing pretty well. I, I knocked out the first three guys that I fought. I fought wow! Look at you. Garden. After yeah. five weeks of training, holy shit! Yeah, nice. Yeah, well, I was a good fighter, and I and I fought a lot in the street. I must tell you. I but I will tell you this. Let me tell you a story. Sure. I had no idea, and this is why. Boxing is one of the few sports I think it really helps if you cover it, if you have done it. Because, it, you know, we've all played baseball, we've all played football a little bit, and we get an idea of what it's about. Boxing, even though I had had a million fights in the street and I was in trouble all the time in high school for it, and, you know, I mean, you know, I was an incorrigible kid and a street fighter, I had no idea what it was like to actually box. Sure. So the first time I got in. And I was bugging the guy who ran the gym. He was an older guy. He's, no, 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 you're too green, you're too green, you're too right, green. Finally, right. Stuck me in with a guy who was 140 pounds. I was 160. Yep. And yep. I was like, what the hell? You know, come on, man, this little guy. And uh, I was shocked. I was shocked. He beat your ass. He beat my fucking ass. And I did <laughs> something else. It wasn't the fact he didn't. I'd been hit harder than guys in the, you know, by guys in the street. Then this guy sure. hit me. Sure. I was shocked by how much snap was on a boxer's punch. Yep. Yep. You know, it felt like I was being hit in the face with a whip. You know, yep, boom, yep. Boom, boom. and it taught me a lot. It taught me how to, you know, because before that, all I knew to do was club people. And you could do yeah. that in the street. You could sure. club the crap out of some guy in the street without a problem. But he taught me how to throw your punches with some snap to get that fist back and do it again. Boom, 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 boom. But 
after that, I learned so much that I then used in covering boxing. You know this too, you box. Yep. I mean, I learned about where your feet are supposed to be, how you're supposed to cut off the ring, how you make a guy go to where you want him, how you force a guy to fight the fight you want to fight, not the fight he wants to fight. Guys who have not been in the ring do not understand this. They may think they have the same knowledge unless you're in there and you're actually practically doing it. It's like anything else. I mean, I can watch a million videos on how to build a brick wall, but until I sit down and do it, you know, actually go out there and do it, I don't know how to do it, yep. you know? So uh, I learned a lot in those five weeks, I must tell you. I sparred with a lot of guys, and uh, I went in, and I, I knocked out the first three guys I fought, and I thought That's I was going all the way. And then what happens? The next day, I go into the gym, and in sparring, I get my jaw broken. Oh, shit. <laughs> so I go to – well, yeah. I remember, like, my teeth were, like, sticking out. And the guy that I was boxing with was a tough son of a bitch. His name was Gerald Banks, and he, he acted as if he hated my guts. And we <laughs> war almost every day. It was another middleweight. And – uh when he hit me, I felt like something wasn't right. I felt like everything moved. And right. I'll never forget the look on his face. He had the look on his face like he just saw like my head get blown off. <laughs> he like, ah, and he stopped right away. And I knew he didn't like me. So if he stopped and he right, wanted to right. and I knew it was pretty bad. Right. So like everybody in the gym would come over and look at me and make that face like, oh, you <laughs> <laughs> Right, right, right. So they sent me to this doctor down the street who looked at me and said, I'm not an oral surgeon. Go home. <laughs> so I went home on the railroad. I had to like kind of push my teeth back in. Yeah, and yeah. The next day they wired my jaw together. And I said to the doctor, I'm in the middle of golden gloves. I said, you know, if I win two more fights, I'm going to win the title. He goes, um, well, you know what? It all depends on how much pain you can take. He right. Goes, you know, they, they ain't going to come out. He goes, like, you know, I, I wired them in. They're not coming. You know, your, your jaw is fine now, but, you know, you're going to get hit there. And it might hurt. It so, might hurt. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I decided I was going to fight with it. Holy um, shit. Look at you. Well, yeah, but you know, it was important to me and it didn't, sure, it, yeah. it didn't really hurt anymore. And, um, you know what the problem was? I couldn't eat all week. Uh, I couldn't eat. So I dropped a right. lot of weight. I think it weighed like 152 for the fight and right. I wound up getting knocked out. But I'll tell you what, it wasn't because of the, it was That's not because I had a broken jaw. I can't believe they let you fight with a broken jaw. Well, they didn't know. I'll tell oh, you. I got gotcha. you. Okay. All right, here we go. Here's some inside knowledge here. I had one of those mouthpieces. Remember those those rubber Everlast mouthpieces that there was like a little thing in the middle that you bit on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yep. white, right? Yep, yep. Well, they cut the piece off. My corner guys cut the piece off that you bite on and just stuck it in my mouth. Ah, so that they never knew. Nice. Yeah. That was and smart. And I'll tell you what. I got stopped maybe because I didn't eat all week and I was weak, but it had nothing to do with, you know, the jaw. Interesting. That's so cool. that was the end of my first Golden Gloves experience. The next year, I broke my hand Ugh. before I even got into a fight. So oh, in sucks. training. So then after that, I only just fought like in, um, you know, in smokers, smokers. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and tournaments. And I kept doing it all the way. I mean, the last time I fought was 10 years ago when I was 52. Holy shit. Yeah, in a, in a white collar thing here on Long Island. And I did well, man. I had, I had a great time. And wow, I, that's I, fantastic. I pretty well. And I really wanted to do it again. But I, I wow. think at this point, I'm probably done. Yeah, and it sucks too to recognize that, doesn't it? When you realize yes. that it's time. Yes, because I still think, as as all old fighters, I think yep. I'm better now than I was 40 years ago. Yeah, I know. I hear you. I go outside <laughs> and hit the bag, and for a half hour, I'm a badass again. But I know. Right. It's yeah. a little different when the other guy's hitting back. Yeah, exactly right. So let me ask you, when you came home with a broken jaw, was your father proud? What was your father's reaction this whole time? Uh, my dad, my parents were horrified. Horrified. Oh, really? <laughs> my mother never wanted me to fight, and she would yeah, of not. Course, yeah. uh, you know, she never went to a fight. Um she wouldn't even, you know, she didn't want to know, you know, right, right, right. we call her as soon as it's done. 
You know, she like going to another room and smoke cigarettes or something. <laughs> my dad, I know he was worried about it. And, 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 you know, of course, when you're 19, you don't think of these things. But sure. now that I'm a father, I can't imagine having right. allowed my son to go into the ring or to go watch him fight and see somebody else hitting him. And I right, know it, right. must have been, it had to be hell on him. Sure. But I will tell you this about my dad. I love my dad. He's, he, he passed away eight years ago. And I miss him every single day. But um, I found out years later that he wrote a letter to the Daily News because the Daily News put me on the back page as I was getting knocked out. Okay. And I still have the back page. Wow. I'm like in full fall, you know, I'm like halfway between standing up and, and flat on my nice. face. Nice. Nice. He wrote a letter laying out to the writer. The writer's name was Jack Smith, who covered the uh, Daily News back then about the broken jaw and the right, fact that right. I fought and how proud he was, but he never told me. Of course. Found yeah. out about it years later. And, That's interesting. And just, just a wonderful thing that he did, you know, and, you know, breaks my heart that he never got to tell me it, but it was, uh, you know, I, I know how he felt about it. My mother thought I was nuts. She thought I was right, nuts right. until the day she died. You know, everything I did, she thought I was crazy. And she of course. At a point. Yeah. So I assume that's uh, your, your Avi and your Twitter account is you and your father. That is my dad, yes. Yeah, that's nice. And I had a similar experience with my dad, too. Never said a word about uh, being proud or, or uh, being interested in, never even saw me fight. But I found really? out later that he was going around and showing newspaper articles to the neighbors and that kind of thing. But great? Yeah, it is. You find, when you find out afterward, yeah, it is, it is cool. I'll tell you this, you know, my dad came to every one of my fights, including the last one I had 10 years ago. Wow. Are you shitting me? Wow. I swear to God. He came to that and he, he, That's cool. he videoed it with his little camera. You know? <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, like, yeah, he, I, I'm, I know it had to be tough on him when I was younger, but by the time I was in my fifties, I think he figured, you know, he must know what he's doing. So. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's cool because in, in those days, uh, the New York Golden Globes was a really big, was a really big deal. Right, oh, you could shit, you yeah. could get five thousand people to a to a finals at the Golden. Oh, and I fought when I got I got knocked out in front of a full house at the Fell Forum. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, a big a deal. Saw that. Yeah, yep, yeah. Yep. And you know who was in? Um, uh, yeah, I was a sub novice that year. It was my first year. Mm -hmm. But the open class that year had guys like um, uh, like Hector Camacho, oh, right, and Davey right. Moore, and wow. um, Alex Ramos. I mean, guys sure. you know, to be really good fighters. Absolutely, absolutely. Mitch Green was the heavyweight champion <laughs> that I got knocked out. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, yeah heavy it, was, it was different. And they were not, we didn't wear headgear back there. Yep. Back there. I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, I hate it every time I fought with headgear. I don't think yeah, I ever want to fight with headgear. I always felt like I got hit more with it. Yep. Me too. And because my, my head is big as it is, I always felt like the headgear made it even bigger. Like it, it was really hard Absolutely. to miss me with a punch. From, exactly right. And I'll tell you why. Because you know, I told you, like I, I, I admired Frazier. So I right. tried to fight with him like him. Right. I tried to slip punches. And when you have a headgear on, you get hit with the punches that would go past you. Yeah. Yeah. Right? You get hit with on the side of the headgear you and your brain gets rattled. It's true. It's true. Without the headgear, that thing goes right past you, man. That's true. Um, so this is a, a question for you. Uh, and it might require some thinking, but maybe not. If you had your druthers as someone who uh, has succeeded probably well beyond your expectations as a writer, and uh, you had success as a boxer. If you had your druthers, would you rather be the greatest boxer who ever lived or the greatest writer who ever lived? You know, since I was never close to being either one of those things. You know what I'm saying, though. It's like yeah, if you, when you yeah, lay, your, when you lay do. down at night, right, I and you do. put it's your head funny. on the pillow. I don't know. If you asked me this when I was 20 years old, I would say the greatest fighter. But, you know, now having seen what happens to so many boxers. Sure, sure. Life, even, the, even the greatest. Mm -hmm. I mean, Muhammad Ali, who's greater than him?
Right, right. You know, seeing what happens to them and, and what objects of pity they become and how they get uh, ripped off so sure. often. And, sure. you know, I, I, I would say, I'd have to say that I, I prefer to have succeeded more as a writer. Yeah. I would, cool. I would, you know, what I would like to have been the writer who could have cleaned up boxing and helped those guys out. There you go. Yeah, I'll buy that. I'll buy that. One of my, and I ask you that because I often think about like uh, my favorite writer, or my favorite novelist, for example, is Kurt Vonnegut, right? And my favorite fighter of all time is George Foreman. Wow. And um, and I sometimes think, you know what? If I had my choice, who would I rather be? Hmm. And now George is really the exception, right? Because he's got more George money than he can ever spend. Yeah, more money than he can ever spend, and, and he's not and punchy. Apparently, and, in perfect health. Yeah, apparently, right. And if I could have spent my life that, my really my entire adult life almost, except for a 10 year span in the middle, knocking the shit out of people mm-hmm. and getting wealthy. I know it's, I know what that sounds like, but no, man, that I, sounds like I, a fun life, man. Because it's, there's such a feeling of, of power and superiority. Exactly right. And you can't overrate that. It's just, it's uh, And they certainly get more respect than writers, especially these Absolutely. Days. Absolutely right. Yeah, you may have changed my mind. <laughs> Can I go and mend my answer? Yeah, I still and you. I'm sure you do this. You walk around your house shadow boxing all the time, right? Like you did when you were 16, oh, right? God, I do it all the time. A camera in my house. Yeah, Please. it's it's ridiculous. I'm the I'm the ridiculous. I'm the chubby old guy at my corporate gym, <laughs> the weirdo who shadow boxes, I and everybody looks at me like, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" I was but, doing it yesterday, and, and yeah. you know, like these twenty somethings are looking at me. Right. <laughs> You know, just leave me alone. Put me it, in my little world. Okay. Ex- exactly right. And it's there's nothing else that feels like that in your body when right. than when you're doing that, right? This is something that so many, you know, everybody it's something here's the thing, and I've written columns about this. It's something everybody thinks they can do. Right, right. You know, like nobody would ever think, you know, I can step in against Max Scherzer and get a hit. Or, right. you know, I could throw a touchdown pass in the NFL. But a lot of people who say, how many times have you heard guys say, hey, for a million bucks, I'd get in against Tyson? Sure, exactly oh, right. fuck, you would not. You wouldn't even go up the steps. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, remind me later, if we get to it, ask me a story about one of Tyson's opponents who had trouble getting up the steps. I'll tell you. Okay. All right. Well, I'll make a note to ask you about that. Okay. But let's let's uh, get up how great it was, uh, or how great it is to have boxing in your life, because it really is. And for all the for all the ways in which boxing is fucked up, mm-hmm. it's really fucking great. It really is great, and to have done it is really great too. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I must say that I went through a little period, you know, a couple of weeks ago after the Pat Day tragedy, where mm-hmm. I thought about, you know, like, you know, can I really do this anymore, or you know, even think about it. You know, can I even be a fan of this anymore? But I think that I I think that boxing does more more good than harm. I really do. I mean, I just look at my own history and right, exactly. where I was headed as as yep. a seventeen year old and and yep. where you know where I went. So yep, I exactly think right. It saves more lives than it takes. I agree. And also, here's the thing about Patrick Day, though, Wally. Uh, he talked all about he talked all the time about how much he loved boxing. Mm-hmm. Right. He really loved it. Yeah. And um. How many of us, uh, and it's going to sound uh, twisted in a sense, but how many of us are going to get to die doing something we love? You know, think well, about it. I don't know. I, you know, if I drop dead in a press box with my face first in the laptop during a baseball game, is that considered dying doing what I love? I don't know. Is it? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't I think know. I'd rather go like Nelson Rockefeller. He died doing something he loved. Yeah, exactly right. But how often? Most of us are really, we're going to run. I, I understand exactly yeah. what you're saying. But yeah, it's we're going to die in a nursing home alone. That's what, you know, absolutely. if we're lucky, right? Yeah, thank you. I feel so much. Uh, <laughs> As you should. With.
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it sucks that a young guy in the prime of his life died that way, but uh, I got to know how to finish you know, that. Here's the thing. And when I was working for the New York Post, you know, and I worked with Jack Newfield, we worked on a lot of stories together. He, he uh-huh. loved boxing. He was a sure. great investigative reporter. Sure. And we were fighting so hard to get uh, somehow like mandatory CAT scans or MRIs before every fight that either mm-hmm. the promoters or the states would have to pay for. Right. Just on the chance that it could catch some kind of defect that is not. I mean, look, you know what a pre-fight physical is these days. Yeah. Like put the if your heart is beating, you're yep. in. You know. Yep. Yep. Um, you know they they shine the light in your eyes. Okay, you're fine. Uh, but I mean, I think that a fighter's brain should be looked at before every single fight, just to see if there's something there that, you know, if you get hit good, there was a lot of times, and I've, I've unfortunately covered several fights where guys have died. Yep. A lot of times it doesn't look like any, any more vicious than any other fight. Exactly you know, right. I covered the Stefan Johnson fight. with Yep, Dave. me too. Yep. Right. You were there. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, he, uh, he got stopped and he stayed in his corner for a while. And I was kind of sitting there just bullshitting with other reporters. And then I suddenly realized, Hey guys, I think, you know, there's a story going on in front of us. And sure enough, you know, I, I think he lingered a week or 10 days or more, but it was just a horrible thing. But there was nothing in the fight that made you think somebody's going to get killed here. I mean, exactly they're not right. like Mancini, Duke, Kim. Right, exactly right. You know, so, exactly. so maybe, you know, there are hidden things within the brain that maybe, you know, our sophisticated technology now could, could pick up. Yeah, maybe. It can't hurt to try, right? Yeah, but uh, nobody obviously nobody wants to pay for it. The promoters aren't going to pay for it. The states aren't going to pay for it. And the fighters should not have to pay for it. Oh, of course. So. so I don't know what the answer is. I, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, it's well, for bigger minds than mine. Safe. Look, the answer is you know you know you cannot make boxing totally safe, but you can make it safe. Right. I don't think we're doing I agree with that. that. I would agree with that. Okay, um, let's talk about uh, some of the work you've done for uh, Ringside Seat Magazine. Wally, if that's okay with you. Yeah. I'm gonna um love the magazine by the way. Thank you. I appreciate that. You really uh, put together a great staff and you do cover a lot of things that I'm very interested in. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. Uh your feature in issue number three uh was about uh, Errol Spence and asking if he was mm. going to be the next American superstar. It looks like mm. that's not going to be the case. Um no. but do you think he was on his way before obviously the, the car crash, uh no. Wally? And and also, um what did his performance against uh Sean Porter say about him in your view all right well at the time i wrote the story you know his his ability he appeared to have the ability mm-hmm. to do that and also the personality if he wanted to right you know if, if he wanted to hold it together um i don't know i mean i'm told he's gonna fight again i'm sure you're hearing the same thing i I'm, i haven't seen the video of that crash i mean i can't believe that that he came out of it alive let alone yeah, right. able yeah. to fight again but I mean the first thing i thought of was like you know salvador sanchez or you know rosario this guy got cut down crime by doing something stupid yep um you know obviously that's not going to happen anymore uh the porter fight i was a little disappointed in the way spence looked quite honestly i thought porter fought, fought a terrific fight much better than i thought mm-hmm. um i thought spence won but i was my, i must say that my my rating of him went down a little bit in that fight uh i did not really see he didn't look like a special fighter in that fight. he looked like a very good fight fighter mm-hmm. He did mm-hmm. not look like a special fighter. Not, you know, I mean, you know, the Sugar Ray Leonard comparisons went completely out of my head and I started, sure. thinking, you know, you know, to use the terminology of today, you know, like this tweet didn't age well. Right, uh, right. You know, and, and I, I thought that maybe the whole welterweight field had tightened up somewhat. I didn't think that Porter would win a rematch, quite honestly. Right. I thought that Spence had a higher upside and, and would improve more in a rematch than I thought Porter fought about as well as he could. 
Exactly. Quite yep. honestly, you know, if he didn't win that night, I, I can't imagine how he would win a rematch, you know, all things being equal. Yep. But um, it just shows you that you can't, you know, and, and I should know this because throughout history, my even my brief boxing history, the past 30 years, I've seen it over and over again. I mean, you know, we thought Donald Curry was going to be. Sure you know, the next Sugar Ray Leonard, yep, yep. Uh, you know, there's so many guys have we, have we looked at and say, you know, Greg Page is going to be the next Muhammad Ali. Yep. Um, you know, it, it just doesn't have, it's not that easy and you can get fooled so easily if yep. you don't really, if you don't really gauge the, the quality of opposition. I mean, that's so important in boxing, you know, it is, you're right. You know, I lived through the Tyson era where we were all sent this video of his first 12 knockouts and they were devastating, but they were guys off the street. Sure. <laughs> I mean, there's literally guys yeah. out of the bar. Yeah. You know, and, and anybody can look good against that. It's like, you know, I, I hate to keep going back to baseball because I do kind of consider myself a baseball writer these days. But if you go watch batting practice, you think everybody's a, a home run hitter, which right, of course right. everybody is right now. Right, but right. Professional athletes, professional baseball players need a home run every single time they want if they know what pitch is coming. Right, and right. Way, you know, a professional boxer, if you watch him on the heavy bag, you can say, God damn, this guy is the greatest thing I've ever seen. You have to see guys against somebody who really challenges them. And right. The problem is fighters very rarely fight those kind of fights, you know, and obviously smart management makes sure you don't fight them that often. Right. But the truth is you, you're often gauging guys on, on a, a scale that's not really comparable. You know, you, when you see a, a guy, you see an Errol Spence knocking out a second rate guy, you, you could very easily be fooled into thinking he's better than he is. But sure. You, you get pushed by somebody who's a little bit closer to his ability. You now, you, you amend your, your, uh, you know, your, your, your temper, your enthusiasm a little sure, bit. Sure, sure. So, you know, I, I think, you know, and I, I should know better than to fall victim to that, but, you know, I, I think I did, and I think we all do, unfortunately. And, um, you know, like the things with Tyson, you know, I saw flaws in Tyson, you know, as far back as the Tillis fight, but, sure. you know, I also saw him, you know, not Sterling Benjamin halfway across the ring. Right, so right. Tice, you know, didn't want to climb the steps to go fight him. So, of course, you know, you, you weigh one against the other, and I think, you know, a lot of us, you know, myself included, tend to weigh the positive over the negative and, and you know, turn a blind eye to, to things that, you know, maybe would tell you to tap the brakes a little bit. Yeah, I think you're right about that. But as writers, we kind of we have to a little bit, right? It, every article can't be, this guy sucks and he's just not that good. No, or, no, I believe it, me, it, it can't be. that period of my career as well. <laughs> yeah, I know, I hear you. We can't, it, that can't be the angle to every story. Calm down, no, this guy's not that good. after a while, your criticism doesn't mean, if you hate everything, you right. know, Exactly right. So sometimes you, you got to uh, drink the Kool-Aid a little bit. Right? Yeah. And his, his fight with Porter was uh, fun in that it was competitive. Right. Yeah. And they both landed. But God damn, it was sloppy as hell. And Porter yeah. brings that out in guys because he, he, he fights like a like a guy having a seizure or walking into a spider <laughs> web. Right. Yeah. It's very awkward. Yeah. It's tough, yeah. It's tough to look good against him. I, exactly I, right. But still, I mean. You want to see an elite guy handle him better than Spence. Yes, an elite guy should so be able to handle everything. I don't want to hear the excuse, well, I never fought this style, or the guys are southpaw, I haven't seen many of them, or, you know, I didn't expect to do that. No, no, you're supposed to be able to overcome all of this. Right, and you also... Know, like, you know, go back to, like, Muhammad Ali, who's, you know, the ideal for me. This guy beat everybody from every style, including, you know, your favorite, George Foreman. He handled sure. him... And, uh, you know, that was a, a, a win, a psychological win as much as a physical win. But, I mean, that's what the greats do. They right. adjust to whatever, whatever the other guy throws at them. Right. And that's ideally, and we, we sound like get off my lawn, guys. I know when I, know when I say this. But, <laughs> but you know what? But, I, I, the first time somebody says, okay, boomer to me, they're going to get punched. <laughs> All 
right? Uh, We're not off my lawn, guys. We are guys who have actually seen, we have a frame of reference. (laughs) We do. This episode of the Ringside Seed Podcast is brought to you in part by 95er Athletic Club. 95er Athletic Club was founded to support the sport of boxing and its athletes by providing the highest quality, most durable, and fun-to-use gloves and gear. The 95er has partnered with select glove makers and leather workers in Mexico City and Leon, Guadalajara, uh, to create a handmade boxing gear that will bring out the best in all athletes, from recreational competitors to the professionals. Each piece of 95er gear is handmade and built to last. Visit 95athletic.com for more info. Yeah, sure. But it, uh, my point was that uh, you're supposed to learn all that shit on the way up before you become a quote, before you become a quote unquote yeah. champion, right? Yeah. Now we got we got guys who are quote unquote champions who oh, I've never fought a, a southpaw before. So what the well, fuck? You know, I was about to you tweet something just yesterday. I know I was about to tweet something that you know because somebody had tweeted something about the belts. And I'm just going to tweet that all belts are bullshit. Yeah, exactly. You know, right. if we if you're if you're a fight fan and you know if you're a knowledgeable fight fan, you know who the good fighters are. You don't need exactly. A belt to tell you that this is, you know, this is a guy worth watching. Um, yeah, absolutely but, right. You know, the problem is, Bill, and it's not a problem. I mean, it's good. There's too much money at stake to be risking. You know, I mean, yep. Sugar yep. Ray Robinson and Lamada fought each other like every three weeks. Right. Exactly. You know, that could never happen today because you nope. make too much money and want in the first fight. Right. Right. And you wouldn't really risk the second fight until you knew you were going to get more, or right. you know, if, if, yep. if there was another guy you could fight for more money who was less risky, you fight him. You know, right. it's different. There's, there's no learning of the craft. And it, it, in a way, it's almost necessitated by economics. Absolutely. Absolutely right. I agree 100%. You mentioned before, Wally, that uh, you're, you consider yourself mostly a baseball writer today. And good for you. I got to tell you, I got to share this little story that I, I think we talked before or we tweeted at least that I was a, a big Yankees fan as a kid. And my favorite guy was Mickey Rivers. But that was, I don't oh, know. I hard. love Mickey. Yeah, I was like, I don't know, 130 years ago. And I, I stopped watching baseball right after the time when, I'm going to say like around 1980, I stopped watching baseball. Wow. And then just recently, for some reason, I started watching a baseball game and I saw uh, instant replay. And I was like, holy shit, when did baseball start doing instant replay? Yeah, how long has this been going on? <laughs> exactly. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Because last time I watched a, a baseball game, there was no instant replay. I didn't even, and I don't follow it at all. Right. So I was just flabbergasted that baseball is doing instant replay now. And of course, boxing still isn't. So maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. But, well, I um, think about boxing and I've thought, you know, I, I think I may have written a column about this, but I mean, you've only got the 60 seconds between rounds and you can't, you know, there's certain things about certain sports you just can't change the nature of. It's true. All right. It's true. I mean, can you possibly do a video review within that 60 second period or are you going to start stretching out the rest period? Then it's not boxing. Anymore. You're right. You know, what what yeah. is it at this, at this point? We're all going to take a, a five minute time out while they look at the tape. Yeah, we, should, I yeah I th- we should get the right call every or as much as we can, I think. But theoretically, I guess uh, you could uh, review a tape while the fight's still going on and determine, for example, whether some whether a cut is caused by a butt, a headbutt, or that's a punch. That's fine. I right? think that's that's very useful. And also, you know, like, well, I, I guess not. I was going to say a knockdown could be reviewed, but there's no there's no rule that says if a guy gets knocked down, you have to give the other guy a two point round. That's true. You're you right. know, I mean, yep. you know, if, if you if you're a good judge, and you know, there are very few of them out there, but you know, you know right. what you're watching, and you know. I mean, I've given guys who have been knocked down, you know, 10, nine round because I would have thought they would have won the round without sure. the knockdown. Sure, you know? I gotcha. And I've yep. given 10, eight rounds without a knockdown because one guy was beating the living crap out of the other guy. <laughs> right. right, right. That's, and that's the way it should be done, right? Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. You have points, use them. Yep, exactly right. Um, getting back to baseball real quick. Uh, give me a couple ways, Wally, in which covering baseball is better than uh, or worse than covering uh, boxing. 
Oh boy. Well, it's different. It's certainly different. You know, um, my first year on the beat or so, I, I used to get myself in trouble because you can ask boxing questions in a certain way that you can't ask baseball players. They're just different. You know, they come from a different environment. They're used to being treated differently. Yep, having their asses I mean, kissed. I, you know, I, I was at a press conference where, where Tim Smith got knocked out by Bone Crusher Smith at the uh, – I mean, Tim Witherspoon Tim got Witherspoon, knocked right, out by, right. by Bone Crusher Smith at the Garden. Right. Yep. And uh, Dick Young <laughs> says, hey, Timmy, did you even trade for this fight? You got pissed. <laughs> And Witherspoon looked back at him and said, well, you got tips too, Dick. <laughs> you know, like crazy shit like that. You would just, yeah. uh, you know, after Tyson got knocked out by Douglas, everybody was kind of like tiptoeing around him at this press conference. And finally, some guy from a foreign paper said, just yelled out, Tyson, why did you lose to Buster Douglas? And Tyson <laughs> looked at him and said, because he kicked my fucking ass. Nice. You know, like, you don't get this in baseball. Right, you know, right, right. Like the first year. I remember asking Joe Torrey. Joe Torrey was really pissed off about uh, a loss. You know, the Yankees had lost for some reason. I don't remember what the circumstances were, but he was really whining about it. And finally, you know, I, and all the baseball writers are there, like kind of like furrowed brow, and they're like uh-huh. nothing long. Finally, I said, Joe, why is this one biting your ass so much? <laughs> nice. <laughs> he just looked at me, and he said, if, you, if I have to answer that, you don't know what, you know, you shouldn't even be here. And he walked away. And I must say, in the years – that have ensued joe and i become very good friends and we get along fine but i i started to realize after pissing off managers and players by being too blunt with my questions that's right. not boxing right you, know, you exactly. gotta kind of tiptoe around you can't say how did you strike out you know with the bases loaded and anything you have to say you know what what pitch were you looking for there right, in that right. situation you know well, so it's different in that way you have to form different relationships right because you don't you don't get the access. I mean, it's very hard. Oh yeah. I mean, I was friendly with you know. I, Jesus, I you know, I've had breakfast with fighters the day they were going to fight. You know, uh, I shot pool with Tyson. Uh, you know, I sparred with James Tony. We were friends. You know, I right, mean, right. You could never do that with a baseball player now. No. They're like celebrities. You know, and they have entourages, and you have to go through. You have to run a gauntlet of their people. You know, to get five minutes with them. Yeah. So you know that makes it more difficult, and you can't really you can't really get to know it's very difficult to get to know the players there are a couple that you, that might allow you in but but not many. and um, and do you say boxing is getting more like that too a little bit right well i i don't know because i'm not around it that oh, much oh i gotcha it appears okay. that way it, appears it does appear that way yeah you said you know uh i was talking with somebody recently about this in the 70s uh an editor would say to his boxing guy go spend two weeks with ali up, oh, in, yeah. up, up in louisville and get a story yeah and that was it and you wouldn't up. have any problem. You wouldn't, exactly. you wouldn't be running a gauntlet, man. You just you call up Muhammad Ali. I mean, right? Exactly. You know, there were still guys, the older school guys. I, you know, like in my phone right now, I have Larry Holmes's phone number. I have mm-hmm. Evander Holyfield's. I have Tyson's. I have Sugar Ray Leonard, um, Foreman. I can get to them. I do not have, and probably will never have, you know, Deontay Wilder's or exactly, or, uh, exactly right, or Anthony Joshua's. You know. That's that's not going to happen. I'm going to have to go through whoever their quote unquote people are. Exactly right. But uh, the one thing about baseball, and I try to explain this to the other guys, that I, you know, they they all kind of freak out when it's a tie game in the ninth, in the bottom of the ninth inning. That's boxing. That's every time you cover a boxing match. It's true. It's the bottom of the ninth inning, and it's a tie game, and you're on deadline. <laughs> that's true. All right. Yeah. That's every yeah. single goddamn time. Yeah, you know, that's funny. I mean, nine out of 10 baseball games will be over in the third inning. You'll know exactly what you're going to write. Every right. boxing match seems to go to the wire and you don't know what. And plus, even after it's over and you think you know who won, you're still waiting for them to tell you who won before you write. It's true. It's so true. That's a good point. It's completely different. Um, but I must say, I enjoy covering both of them. And uh, the thing I liked about baseball is that I, 
there's a one-on-one confrontation. Yep. To me, it's a series of one-on-one boxing matches, pitcher versus hitter. Yep, it's true. I haven't you thought know, of that. And yeah. You see 27 of them on each side every single night. You know, and that's yeah. what I like about boxing. That's why I don't particularly like covering the NFL. You know, Interesting. Me, it's, it's not, it's impersonal. Yeah, yeah. You know, but baseball and boxing are personal. I mean, tennis is personal. It's one-on-one. Sure. On one. Yep. Um, you know, uh, so that that's always kind of attracted me. There's, there's that one-on-one confrontation that where you can really hang your story on. We can really say, hey, this is the moment I have to pay attention to right now. Right, you right. Know, here, here's my story right at this second. And you get that in boxing and get it in baseball. That's interesting. I never thought of baseball in that way. That's a series of little boxing matches between the pitcher and the uh, little fights yeah. rather between the yeah. pitcher and uh, the batter. That's a good point. That's the way I've always looked at it. You know, Interesting. And, and to me, that's, that's the only way you can really write a baseball game because, you know, I, I teach my, my journalism students, you know, even when you're writing a baseball game, find the moment that was important, you know, the, the key moment of the game. And it's going to be a one-on-one thing. It's going to be, you know, the two old pitch that, that so-and-so threw to this guy that he either hit or he didn't hit, you know, and, and that's where the game turns right there. Um, right. So, I mean, to me, that's the attraction of baseball, and that's the similarity between the two of them. Interesting. You mentioned before, and I've read a lot about this. I shouldn't say read. I've scanned a lot of things in Twitter that compl- where people are complaining about this, that they're, everybody is a home run hitter now. What's going on? Is it the juice? Is it the balls is too tight? Is it the stadium well, is too little, or what's going on? I think it's the ball now. I mean, look, obviously, you know, in the 90s, it was steroids. There's no right. doubt about that. But, it, yeah, this year it was the ball because um, – Earlier in the year, if you remember the pitchers, a lot of them were complaining, especially guys who, who rely on sliders and, and, uh, and cut fastballs where you need the seams. They were complaining they couldn't get a feel for the ball. Really? The ball was flat. The ball was flat. I mean, you know, there's a difference between the batting practice ball and the ball they use in the game. I, I picked up the game balls. It's almost like a lacrosse ball now. The seams huh. are flat. And I think that how it cuts wind resistance. You don't have okay. to cut it by a lot to get that ball out of the park. And if it takes some of the break off a pitch that, that a pitcher can throw, it makes a huge difference. I mean, when a guy like Glaber Torres, who I think is a terrific player, but when, you know, the Yankees got him, they thought of him as a Derek Jeter type line drive, you know, gap hitter. Never thought of him as a home run hitter. When this guy hits 38 home runs, something's not right. All right. Okay. I, I, just for the record, I have no idea who that is, but a lot of Glaber, our listeners. The Yankees second baseman, he's a terrific <laughs> okay. player, was an MVP candidate this year. He, just had a tremendous year, but he's a small guy who they expected to hit, you know, a lot like of a Willie, and doubles. Like a Willie Randolph like guy? He pulls out of the park this year. Like a Willie Randolph kind of guy? Yes, yeah, sort of okay. like that. Uh, right. You know, and Brett Gardner, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Not a no big idea. guy at all. Hit 29 home runs. Yeah, I have no idea who that is either. But okay. I'm sure a lot of our, our li- again, I don't follow baseball at all. So a lot of our, a lot of the listeners will know who that you is. You weren't kidding when you said you haven't watched in 30 years. No, I really don't. Um, but uh, so do you think the, uh, the modification of, of the baseball is a, a move on the part of the league to generate more home runs and, and uh, uh, attendance and that kind of stuff? Without a doubt. I mean, yeah. baseball is desperate for young viewers. You know, they're losing okay. out a lot to the NBA. Really? Kids love okay. the NBA and, and the NFL. And, you know, they, they are falling victim to the belief that the game is too slow, that it's boring, that there's not enough scoring. So they try to juice it up the same way they you. literally juiced it up, you know, 25 years ago. <laughs> right, right. You know, I mean, it, it's all a desperate attempt to, uh, to attract a younger audience where, you. you know, and I understand everybody is, is fighting for a piece of the entertainment dollar. Yep, yep. But baseball has, you know, its, it's particular charms and attractions that can be taught to young people. Right. You know, 
If you sit down, if I sit down with a kid and show him a baseball game and explain to him what's going on, I guarantee I'll make that kid a fan, you know, but uh, this is the easy way out. It's like, let's just give him a lot, a ton of home runs and people will come watch the, you know, all we hear about is how long the home runs are now as if it means, you know, as if you get more than one run, you know, like I had a laugh last year, the Yankees were bragging about, they had like uh like nine of the 10 hardest hit balls, the fastest exit velos in baseball. Oh, come on. And yet yeah. they finished nine games behind the Red Sox. So what difference did it make? Right, right, right. You right. know, and, and the Mets, a lot of that same thing this year, you know, Pete Alonso hit three of the longest home runs. Well, fine. You guys finished 11 games behind in your division. What difference does it make? But this is what they're selling now, rather than right, selling right. the team aspect or, or you know, the, the grace of, the, of a terrific double play or, you know, the strategy of, of laying down a punt or hitting the other way or hitting behind the runner. They're just saying, come and watch us hit home runs. Watch out. Right. Hard right. I got you. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's, it's more, more uh, evidence of, of things that guys in, uh, around our age are sickened by that the next generation, will, they won't know any better. So that'll just be their norm. It's just a general dumbing down. And I, yeah. I think, you know, like, boxing's not immune to it either. Nope. No, all it isn't. The, you know, all the belts, all the, the phony titles, the interim yep. titles, the gold yep. titles, silver titles. It's a dumbing down process. It's trying yep. to make people, uh, it's trying to attract people to something that they really shouldn't be attracted to. They, you know, right. rather than selling the game on its merits. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But I, I try to remember whenever I feel that way, and it seems very obvious to me that this is what's happening, right? I try to remind myself that 80 years ago, people were looking at changes to the game the same way we are now. Oh, of course. Because it wasn't what they were used to. Right. Sure. So I just try to, if I don't think that way, I'm just going to go crazy. So I, I just, remember when my parents thought the Beatles were the end of the world. Exactly. Right. Right. And um, that's interesting stuff. I see. I know more about baseball now than I did 20 minutes ago. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not, I'm not going to use that for anything, but, but that's cool. Good. Um, Maybe we'll get you to a game now. <laughs> you know what? I think, uh, I think I was last at a baseball game. I had to be like 1978 or something. I'm not even wow. kidding. Wow. Yeah, the yeah. game's changed a little bit since then. Yeah, but I guess it's still so. the same thing. Still a guy throwing a ball. There's still the same distances. And, uh, Interesting. Um, you mentioned uh, having Larry Holmes' uh, number in your cell phone a few minutes ago, Wally. I, I'm very fascinated by this guy. It sounds like you have a pretty good relationship with him based on some things you've uh, written on uh, yeah. Twitter. Uh, tell, me, tell, me, uh, tell me your thoughts on Larry and, okay. and uh, over, just overall and as well, a person and a fighter. Go ahead. So, you know, to this day, whenever I talk to Larry, if he gives me, and Larry is a, is a great ball buster. He's really, you know. Yep, yep. You know, whenever he gives me any shit, I go, look, man, you're responsible for me. And I'll tell you why. When I was a, a part-timer at Newsday and I desperately wanted to cover boxing, mm -hmm. um, the day after he, he beat Carl Williams, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And he was 48-0. Uh, He's going to fight um he doesn't know who he's going to fight, but he's, he knows his next win. He's going to put him on a par with Marciano. Right. Uh, Newsday had covered the fight, and their, and their reporter was flying back on a Sunday, and I was in the office on a Sunday morning, and I thought, Jesus, why don't I just call Larry Holmes? Like, you know, just out of the blue, kind of stupid thing you would do when you're a kid, you know? Yeah. So I, call, I knew he was at the Riviera because that's where the fight was. I watched the fight the night before. I called the Riviera, asked for his room. They rang it. <laughs> picked up the phone he picked up the goddamn phone yeah i yeah. told him who i was and he goes i'm doing my laundry what do you want <laughs> <laughs> i 
I said, well, you know, I watched the fight last night. I was just kind of interested. What are you thinking about, you know, who are you going to fight next? And he said, well, we're, we're looking at this guy, Michael Spinks. Huh. So I called my editor at home. I said, I just talked to Larry Holmes. He says he's going to fight Michael Spinks next. He says, write it. So wow. I wrote it and I got a byline on it. And um, after that, they started to take me more seriously as a boxing writer. And um, not long after that, I weaseled my way into uh, spending a couple of days with him in Easton and mm -hmm. uh, we just, we hit it off great. I mean, I, I just always liked him. I always felt that he was a guy that was misunderstood by people. I thought that he took a lot of uh, crap for the, uh, you know, after the Sphinx fight mm -hmm. where, mm -hmm. you know, Rocky can't carry my jock strap. I mean, right, I, right. I understood that he was a guy who just lost it, who, you know, wanted to win this fight more than anything in the world. Right? Sure. No doubt about it. Lost a tough decision, close decision you know, that maybe Muhammad Ali would have gotten if it was him. Sure. Instead of Larry yep. Holmes. Yep. Yeah. You know, incredibly disappointed. And I must say this, you know, I don't know Peter Marciano. He may be a very nice guy. He's Rocky's brother, but he was gloating and, and accepting yep. congratulations at the press conference. Yeah, that's bullshit. On the yep. Fight. yep. Yep. And I was looking at him. I was like, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, yeah, would Rocky be gloating like this? I don't right. know. Yep. You know? Yep. And, and so I understood exactly where he was coming from. Sure. So, I kind of felt, you know, I kind of felt that he was he was getting kind of screwed by, by a lot of guys in the in the press and the boxing press. We weren't known as the media then; we were, we were just the press, right? Um, you know, and and I told him that, and and we hit it off, and we just always got along well. And he wound up you know, later on inviting me to his house in Jacksonville. We went out on a boat, we went fishing, you know. We, That's cool. You know, and I think he understood that that I understood, you know, like right, like I right. got it. I, I didn't think he was, you know, everybody's making fun of him you know, the way he talked and, you know, and he was in Ali's shadow. And I thought he got really screwed in the Cooney fight. And I was just a fan then, you know, living on Long Island. But I knew that, uh, you know, this guy couldn't, that A, Cooney couldn't fight. B, Cooney was getting more money than him. Yep. And yep. C, a lot of people somehow thought Cooney was going to win the fight. Yeah. And I must tell you, I made a small mint, you know, betting <laughs> oh, my, yeah. my friends out here. Sure. That was I'll bet. Fight. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I did have a really good relationship with Larry. And, um, you know, I, I, I covered his fight when he fought Oliver McCall, and I thought he was going to win the fight. I, uh -huh. fact, I thought I actually thought he did win the fight, but he um, he actually told me he, he, he knew he lost it. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I know I'm all over the place on this. but No, I, no, no. I that's like that's fine. And I respect him. I think he's an underrated fighter and underrated as, as a person as well. Interesting. I, I have some experiences with him also. And I tweeted, and this is how I think I, I got the impression that you're close with him. I tweeted once uh, in the last year or two that uh, most people are pricks who pretend to be nice. Right. Who pretend to be good people. Yes. And and Holmes, was, to me, seemed the opposite. Like he's Absolutely. a good person that's a, that's who pretends greatest, to be a prick. That's, that's the best uh, assessment of Larry I think I've ever heard. Uh, I interviewed him for, uh, when I was with The Ring and KO and those guys, I interviewed him for the KO uh, Kayo interview once and we met over uh in Easton. He was doing that uh local cable TV show, uh What Were mm -hmm. They Thinking of or something, which was uh god awful, just terrible. But uh afterward, uh we sat down for a couple hours there and um he was being Larry, you know, saying right. some things that uh people didn't a lot of people don't like to hear and that kind of stuff, which was cool. I'm all for that, right? Yeah. And but he was kind of a prick at once he's prickly, that's a better way to put it. Prickly a couple times. Mm -hmm. And then uh you know, we finished the interview and then he said, and I would like to invite you guys over to my, uh, to my bar for drinks and lunch. And it was just a, like a switch went off mm -hmm. and it was the most, uh, 
was the nicest, most congenial guy. I think uh, that's the real Eric. I really yeah, do. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that other one is a guy that's compensating for having to follow uh, Muhammad Ali, for having, you know, having been ripped off by King, by having to play second fiddle in his own heavyweight title fight to a guy like Sure, Kobe. sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of compensation there. And, you know, look, I, I, honestly, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that might react the way Larry did to some of those things as well. I mean, sure, I sure. I don't hide my feelings that well. And, you know, if I, if I don't like somebody, I generally tell them. And sometimes, I, you know, I'll say things that I might regret afterward. But I could see a lot of that in Larry. And I, and I think there's justification for it. Yeah, those are my favorite kind of people generally. But here's the other thing about Larry that, that annoys me. And, and you know what? We're all very complex. There's no, nobody's all good and all bad, right? right. He spent, I want to say, like uh, three quarters of his, uh, of his speech at the Hall of Fame in Canastota in the last couple of years bashing Foreman. Now, of course, I'm going to be sensitive. Oh. I'm a Foreman guy, right? So yeah. I love Foreman. But all he talks about is George is a phony. George is, and he told me some of this too during our interview. George is the biggest phony of anybody. I saw George do this. I saw George do that. Mm-hmm. George doesn't give a shit about the fans. And man, it just comes off like jealousy and sour grapes. Yeah, that's not good. I wish somebody. Right? Would, I wish he would listen to somebody. I'm sure people have counseled him. I don't know if anybody. I mean, his wife is a sweetheart. I'm sure she's. Yeah, uh, yeah. She's tried to get through. Um, he's just one of these guys. That, you know, I, I've never heard any of his speeches at Canastota. I know that. Okay. You know, he always wanted to fight George. Yep. Yeah, I think he always felt that he could do what Ali did with George. And, you know, they were trying to get it together even when they were in their In 40s. the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it never, never came together. Uh, you know, I'll tell you something about George. I, I, I was told the same thing. I was told um, things like that about George by Richie Cicchetti, who obviously mm-hmm. was, was uh, Larry's trainer. Sure. Um, and I believed some of them, you know, and I actually wrote some. And uh, I will tell you something about George. You know, if he is a phony, he's a damn good one. Yeah. Um, before he fought more, you know, I, I was very friendly with Teddy Atlas. And I, I must admit, you know, that I, I kind of wanted more to win the fight. You know, I, I felt bad for more. I think he's, he's a guy who had some problems. Yeah. You know, real psychological problems. And I think that beating George would have really would have really helped him. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of under the spell of people like Richie Giacchetti, you know, and telling me these things about George. And I wrote a pretty rough column about George a couple of days. Really? Before. Yeah. Now I was, um, and I had stuff to back it up. I mean, you know, you can go back and find it. Or for the New York sure. Post, you know, I, sure. I, I mean, I'm kind of afraid to look at it myself now. But, uh, <laughs> right, right. Day before the fight, the guy I was wor- I was working for ESPN at the time as well, and I was working with a guy who's actually a phony. He's a, he's a very <laughs> famous broadcaster. He's not Al Bernstein. All right, he's not uh-huh. a boxing guy at all. Okay, he's a guy that that if I said your name, you know it. Yeah. Anyway. He grabbed Foreman and brought him a copy of my column and said, look at what this guy wrote about you. This wow, is what a dick. Wow, what a jackass. You know what George Foreman said to him? What? George Foreman said, I don't care what he wrote. The guy's got to write something. He's my friend. Holy shit. Wow, that's cool. So how do you think I felt at that point? Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> like Ugh. a complete friggin' asshole. Wow. And uh, I also, you know, after that, I, I, um, I asked him to um, – to host a boxing writers dinner with me. And he did it graciously. Wow. Uh, so I have nothing bad to say about George. I mean, you know, I, I, uh, I was wrong. I was wrong. You know, interesting. I say that now. And it's funny I, because he actually, I actually broke the story of his comeback. Well, let me hear that. Tell me about it. All right. I was doing a story at Newsday and I think it may have been the 20th anniversary. I'm trying to think he was in 1968. Yeah. So it must've yep, been. Yep. So 1988 doing a story on the 20th anniversary of John Carlos and Tommy Smith's protest at the Olympics in Mexico right, City. Right, right. Because George was in that Olympics and he waved the American flag. He, right. he was considered, you know, 
the good guy by right, white America. Right. You know, he's the one who's waving the flag, unlike those two, you know, those two guys with the black gloves. Right, right, right. So I had spoken to both Carlos and Smith, and they were great. And I called George. I don't remember how I got his number, probably from Mort Charnick, the CBS mm-hmm. guy who was very close with George. Yep. And uh, we had never really spoke. We had never spoken before. I didn't know a guy at all. And um, we started talking about Carlos and Smith and what was going through George's mind when he waved the flag and all that. And then just as the conversation was winding down, I just said, so, you know, you haven't fought in 10 years. What have you been doing? He goes, well, I want you to write this down. He goes, I'm going to fight again. I was like, what? He hadn't fought in 10 years. Right, right. He goes, and I want you to take down this quote exactly. I said, why are you going to fight again? I said, why? (laughs) He goes, write this down exactly the way I said it. He said, for life, liberty, and the pursuit of my happiness. Wow. So he gave me the story. Just added, He just casually dropped it in at the end of a conversation. Wow. And I wrote it, and Sports Illustrated picked it up, and it was a whole big deal. And, of course, you know, six, seven years later, he's the heavyweight champion. Yeah. It's the most amazing story, I think, probably in the recent history of sports. Um, so, you know, the more I think about it, the more contrite I am about, you know, having fallen victim to those stories about George. And I just say, if he's not the real deal, he's a tremendous actor. So interesting. I, I've, as a foreman guy, I've, I watched every move the guy makes. And even when he was, this sounds so uh, obsessive and crazy, but uh, when Jimmy Young beat him in 77, I was 12 years old and he was my idol then. And I cried myself to sleep that night. We've all got those stories from when we were kids in our sport. Oh, yeah, that was the right? same thing that happened to me the night of the thriller in Manila because I was a Frazier guy. Exactly. And so uh, during that period, during that 10 years, I went from, uh, again, I was 12, so I was 17, and I started boxing and had this whole other teenage life, which is very exciting, of course. Right. And, but at the same time, I'd get uh, boxing magazines all the time. And the first thing I do is look through them for some mention of George Foreman, mm-hmm. always, to see that he was coming back. And so when he did, uh, uh, I grabbed a friend of mine, and we flew out to uh, California. Were to you see at his... that fight in Oakland? Yes. I was there. Get out of here against George Hostetter. No, 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 oh, okay. no. I think his second fight was in Oakland also. Was it against Zowski? Zowski was the first fight. And I was at that fight. I was really? on vacation in San Francisco <laughs> with my wife, and I said, let's, let's drive across the bridge and go watch George Foreman fight. <laughs> wow. No, I went to the George Hostetter fight in Oakland. Wow. Just me and a buddy of mine flew out to California, and I wasn't writing about boxing that I hadn't, hadn't been published yet. I was just that big of a Foreman fan. And for all I knew, that was as far as the comeback would last. So I didn't, I didn't know he'd be fighting 10 years. So I said, I'm not, I'm not missing any opportunity to see him fight live. And then we flew and he, he destroyed Hostetter in a terrible fight. And the crowd booed him and some were chanting Ali, Ali, which just killed me. And then, uh, and then we flew back the next day. But um, I've always kind of felt like, I, I've kind of seen evidence of him being a prick too. And I kind of feel like uh, there's a battle between good George and bad George. Mm-hmm. And uh, the more time passes, the more, times good george wins right you know and i'm kind of attracted to that too by the way like i think i preferred as a fighter i preferred the young badass crazy george over the old cuddly george yeah but the funny thing is i think old cuddly george is a better fighter a better fighter yeah but well i think for me at least i think a better boxer would be closer to 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 what i would say I, i think all around i mean you know what the old george would not have beaten uh alex stewart I That's know a good point. Crazy, he didn't, have... but he was taking a beating in that fight. Right. And the old George would have quit because I That's... thought that he mentally gave up against Ali, and I thought he yep. mentally gave up against Jimmy Young, and I thought he was on the verge 
of mentally giving up against uh, the guy, I, I'll tell you his name in a minute, the, that he had to be talked through the fight, Gregorio Peralta. Oh, yeah. He had to be talked career, through the yeah. fight. Yeah, that's he had interesting. He was told yeah. by his corner that it was the last round, but there were really right. two rounds to go. Right, right, right. And he was pissed when he found out he had two rounds to go. Yes, yeah. yes. That's a, that's a, a different guy. He went in to knock people out, and when he didn't do it, you know, something went out of him. And I think the second time around, he was a much more relaxed fighter. I, I don't think, you know, I don't think he was meant, I think he was mentally stronger. That's you true. Know? I, I mean, he went to, I mean, the fight with Holyfield, for God's sake, how many times did he get hit in that fight and stand up? Right, right. I think the first George would have done that. He got hit many more times in that fight than he did by Ali. Sure. Agreed. Yeah. Here's, oh, go ahead. No, that's all right. That, those are, that's a very good point that he was mentally stronger. But uh, against 25-year-old George, Lou Savarese, Moore, Crawford Grimsley, uh, Shannon Briggs, all those guys he fought toward the end of his career don't go three rounds. Oh, and he blows well, those guys true. out. That's true. That's right? true. I mean, let's not – I'll never forget the look on Ken Norton's face. Right, exactly. Just getting into the ring against him right. in that fight. I mean, you knew it. If there was a trap door in the ring, man, he would have taken it. Yeah, you know what's so, interesting to me also? Don't you wish that uh, you could have been on a, a fly in the wall when, like, Ken Norton told Joe Frazier, oh, by the way, I'm fighting Foreman. Because <laughs> like, they were close, right? They were sparring partners yeah, and friends. I guess. I don't yeah. know. I, I was never a huge Norton fan, quite honestly. But that must have been a great conversation. Like, Joe must have been like, you fucking crazy. Like, you you <laughs> see what that did to me? That guy fucking <laughs> killed me. You're going to fight him? And I yeah, kick your ass in the gym every day? You know, I just rewatched the Foreman-Frazier first fight. And mm -hmm. my God. He was literally lifting him off the canvas with those punches. Yeah. Literally. And the guy got up six times and would have got up six more times if they had allowed him to. Sure. You know, yeah, I mean, absolutely. anybody that thinks that Foreman wouldn't have beat Tyson, you just don't know what you're watching. He would have knocked Tyson out. And Tyson would not have gotten up six times. He wouldn't have gotten up <laughs> twice. Yeah, probably. I mean, please. Probably. You know, by the way, I'm looking at BoxRec as we talk. And uh -huh. the fight that I was at was Tim Anderson. It was his third fight back. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right, I remember that. Yeah. Oh no, I'm no. What am I saying? I'm wrong. I'm telling you, Oakland Coliseum. I was there, and that was his second fight. His first fight was Zowski. You're right. Yeah. You know what's funny about the Hostetter fight is, um, you know that that quiet moment, right? You know, after the fighters go to the center of the ring for their instructions, and they walk right. back to their corner and wait for the bell to ring. Yep. I selected that moment because it was quiet. Yeah. Right. And I stood up from my bleacher seat and yelled, "George!" And he looked at me, and I sat back down and said, "Is that right?" Yeah, I swear to God. Yeah. And it wasn't wow. like I was ringside, but it was really loud. The place was quiet. It was a small place to begin with. And I just felt satisfied that, holy shit, George Foreman just looked at me. I'm talking with veteran New York sports writer Wally Matthews on the Ringside Seat podcast. Are you ready for good news? Listen up. Cleto Reyes USA will have big deals on Black Friday. Just follow them on Facebook and stay tuned. You can find them on Facebook as Cleto Reyes USA. The online store is com. <laughs> but you know what? Because he was a relaxed fighter. Yeah, right. And you probably day thinking he it's fought Holyfield. All right, he's fighting Holyfield for the heavyweight title. First, right, his first heavyweight title fight since uh, since um, Zaire, obviously, right? Right. 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 All right, got to be. You would think a normal person would be nervous at this sure. point, correct? All yeah, right. Sure. The guy comes into the press room in the afternoon, like four o'clock, and starts wow. eating the, the fried chicken at <laughs> the table for the media. <laughs> And sits there and talks to us. That's great. And I'm like, George, don't you have to fight tonight? You know, like, like I wanted to. I felt ner I was getting nervous. Right, right. It's like get the hell out of here. You know, <laughs> go That's get funny. ready for the fight. So yeah, I think he was a different guy uh, the second time around. 
Uh, I didn't like him the first time around because I was a Frazier guy. And, right, you know, right. He destroyed my guy twice. In fact, sure. I went to the second fight at Nassau Coliseum. I bought my dad a ticket, me and him tickets for Father's Day because it was right around Father's Day in May. Right. And, uh, you know, we, we were just devastated because we thought the first fight had to be a fluke. You know, there's no way this guy could beat Joe Frazier twice. So I wasn't a fan then, but I, I became a fan the second time around because, you know, he just could not be. The, the guy, what you were saying about what you heard in the Coliseum that night and people laughing at him, he didn't care. Yeah, that's amazing Everybody to me. Everybody was yeah. writing, this guy's nuts. He's going to yep. get killed. What's he doing? This fat guy, blah, blah, blah. Yep. He, just, he just went about his business. Yep. And the day that I really took him seriously was the, the day he knocked out Cooney. Well, let's so talk about that. I thought that. Cooney was good, but I mean, that was, right. uh, to me, that was, that was the one that showed me this guy's for real. That changed a lot of people's minds. Um, tell me about that. Uh, you said you're, uh, you were oh. on Long Island, that's, and that's Cooney territory, right? Yeah, Even at that yeah, point, yeah. that's Cooney you know, territory. I always thought Cooney was a fraud. I, 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 to this day, I believe that Lyle and Norton took dives against him. Really? Yeah, I really do. I mean, I look at the, the Norton fight. I mean, he made it look really good, and he took some shots, but he didn't even try to win that fight. Neither did Ron Lyle, you know. And one thing we know about Cooney, you know, you hit him, you knock him out. We know that. We know True. that. When Michael Spinks, I'll tell you a very damaging story about Jerry Cooney, all right? Sure. He, when he signed to fight Michael Spinks, he was at the funeral of someone, I don't know, but a friend of mine was there also. It was a boxing person who had died. And he said to the person, congratulate me, I'm fighting a light heavyweight. Hmm. All right? So he thought that he that he had easy pickings against Michael yeah. Spinks. Yeah. You know, he was a bully. I'm going to beat up this little light heavyweight. Right. The light heavyweight knocked him the fuck out. Okay? <laughs> you sure did. Yeah. All right. Larry Holmes could have knocked him out in the second round of their fight. There's two reasons why he didn't. Okay? And this, this I'm, I must tell you, part of it comes from Richie Giacchetti, who's not the greatest source in the world. But he told me that uh, Ray Arcel and, um, and Futch were scared to death. Or I think it may, may have been Freddie Brown. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of who's in that corner. Scared to death of Cooney and told Larry in no uncertain terms, do not go after this guy until you know he's finished. Really? Yes. They were scared of him. They thought that he could knock, that he, that he is hard enough to knock Larry out. They put it in Larry's head. Take your time. So when Larry knocked him down in the second round, instead of like, you know, as he normally would do, go in and try to finish him, Right. off. My all, my other suspicion there is that he was carrying him for the hope of a rematch. Interesting. You know? You know? But Larry speaks very highly of Jerry, even to this day. Of course, because they well they've made money together, and they uh you know they they've done like a they do like a signing tour together and all of that business. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, when he's fighting Foreman, okay, and I told you I was I was very uh, I was close with Gil Clancy. I right, right. Him. One of the great regrets of my life, Bill, is that he asked me to do his biography back in like. Oh, uh, are you uh, shitting me? Oh man! Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And but I was just starting out in the business, and I really uh. was unsure of my ability to, to really do it justice. And wow. Okay. And I really felt horrible, but we we became we remained friends throughout his life. And anyway, he was training Cooney, and you know he thought Cooney was in the best shape of his life. Right. Right. And George basically wasn't training. Are you I mean, serious? You know, we would go every day. We would go to his training sessions, and George would just like basically do his stand-up routine. You know? <laughs> and he like shake hands and kiss babies and tell jokes about being fat. It's funny. Old. He would like, walk around the ring. He wasn't doing a goddamn thing. So we went to dinner. Gil and I went to dinner the night before the fight, right? Friday night in Atlantic City. 
of someplace on the boardwalk. And, you know, throughout dinner is going, you know, there's no way you can lose this fight. If, if George wins this fight, it sets back boxing a hundred years. He says, uh, yeah, sets right. back boxing training a hundred years if George wins this fight. <laughs> okay, fine. So now we're walking back to the hotel and we come in through the, the boardwalk doors of the hotel and we had to pass through some uh, ballrooms to get to, uh, you know, to the casino and the elevators. And as we're walking through, we're hearing in the background, we're hearing, right? The sound of like a fist hitting something. Yeah, yeah. And we looked at each other like, what the fuck? So <laughs> we go into the, we open a door and here's George in the ring hitting a heavy bag. I mean, like putting dents in this thing like you would not believe and yeah. working hard. Huh. It's like 11 o'clock at night, the night before the fight. Holy shit. And I looked at Gil and I said, Gil, I think this fucker is sandbagging you. Yeah. Sure really sounds like it. it. Yeah. Gil looked at me, and if you remember Gil's face, I mean, yeah. his face got whiter than. We <laughs> both looked at each other yeah, like this guy was training in secret. Yeah. Night. Holy shit. Next day, we saw, <laughs> and believe me, I believe I led my story with something like, you know, <laughs> George Foreman just set back boxing training 100 years. According wow. To yeah, Holy. because. Um, we walked right through Cooney. Yeah. Yeah. And, but obviously, you know, George is a cunning guy. Yeah. You know, and he was, yes, he wanted to play up this image, you know, lovable fat guy, haha, the fighting preacher. Right, right. You know, whatever the hell he was, and he wasn't really doing anything, and people loved him, haha. In the meantime, he was training, and I, I wound up talking to, you know, some confidants of his who told me, you know what, George is nocturnal. He never sleeps. He, huh. you know, he basically does most of his work at night. Whatever you see him doing in the daytime, it's bullshit. It's, it's not real. Holy shit. So, That's so that, great. yeah, they learned a hard lesson in that one. That's so interesting. Um, and uh, Cooney, I think Cooney, or yeah, Cooney and Clancy had a weird relationship. I think because uh, I think my impression was always like Clancy loved Cooney and always felt that he wasn't handled correctly and it could have been much better than he was yeah. if he had been brought up correctly. And so well, when he. Yes, go ahead. go ahead. And so when Cooney came back. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure whether he reached out to Clancy or vice versa, but I tend to think that was probably Clancy reached out to him and said, let's do this right this time. Yeah, I can get, yeah, I, I, yeah. I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, Victor Valley had died. Right. Exactly. And even if you go back and watch, uh, if you look back to YouTube and watch, uh, Cooney's fight with Jimmy Young, which Clancy called from ringside, he's just raving about how much, uh, he loved Cooney and all the things that he did right in the ring. And I kind of think some of it was right. I think we disagree a little bit on, on what his potential was and how he, how he was as a fighter but not so much as a man i think we're right on the same page with that but uh uh clancy loved him and and i remember he had uh, an affinity for irish fighters as well because you know he loved jerry quarry right exactly jerry quarry yep. years before and always felt that he thought quarry was more talented than ali but he yeah. thought that he had he, and he told me he said you know he's got psychological problems and uh in fact there's a great book if somebody wants to write about jerry quarry someday if you could sell it uh, you know, he'd say he would talk himself out of the fight in the dressing room. Really? Yeah. yeah he'd say, you know, we, we'd be getting ready to go out there and he'd start talking crazy. He'd start saying, shit, I weighed 299. I weighed 199. I wanted to weigh 205. <laughs> or, Sam, like we that. didn't run on Wednesday. We should have run on Wednesday. Like, he right. would start putting negative things into his head right. and wind up losing the fight. That's interesting. And in a sense, Cooney was the same way, kind of a head case like that. He'd have anxiety attacks all the time. Yeah, yeah, but I, I don't think I think there's a, a vast difference in, in talent between. Oh, absolutely. Jerry yeah, Quarry no question. Yeah, no question. No question there. Jerry but I, I, yeah, I, I believe that. And I think that's probably why uh, Cooney, you know, got into his problems with drugs and alcohol. Because that's, yeah. that's a way yeah. of dealing with, sure. with anxiety. 
Sure. So since we're talking about Foreman, my man, I'll, I can I can talk about Foreman all day. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the uh, the Mora fight. You covered that, right? Yes, I did. Tell me about that. What was that like? Being well, there? you know, when people ask me what's the best thing you ever covered, I, I always mention two things. I mentioned the Rangers winning the Stanley Cup in 1994 because I had been a Ranger fan as a kid and just having, you know, being in the garden, you know, that night and seeing how excited everybody was, it was just an amazing thing to see. It was one of the, the few things that you cover and you go, hey, you know what? This is a pretty cool thing. Uh, the other one is Foreman Moore. And the reason is I didn't think there was any way George could win. Sure. You know, I mean, I thought he had peaked with the Cooney knockout. And then, yep. you know, he, he thought he fought well against Holyfield. You know, I thought he fought well, but he lost. I mean, he clearly lost. He, you yep. know, he yep. lost the fight like eight rounds to four. And, you know, he lost to a younger guy. I was like, okay, nice try. And then after that, he didn't really fight that well, if you recall. He had yep. that really tough fight with, uh, I mentioned it before, with Alex, Alex Stewart. Stewart. Yep. 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 You know, I mean, Alex Stewart fought the fight of his life that night. Yep. And then he, he lost that decision to Tommy Morrison, which a lot of people thought was a fix. You know, there, was, yep. there were rumors that week that he was going in the tank and that he hmm. that he had a piece of Morrison. Really? I mean, it was pretty, uh, you know, in fact, somebody, I'll tell you a story about your boy there. Some, <laughs> a woman at one of his open workouts where he would do these monologues and not train said to him, is it true you're taking a dive against Morrison? Holy shit, a woman, really? Like a fan. Wow. And you know what he said? What? He, he, I, I got to give him credit. He goes, no, ma'am, I don't look good in swim trunks. <laughs> That's fast. He that was quick, was, man. Was, yeah. yeah. And yeah, but he lost that fight. So now he's going to fight yeah. Michael Moore, who just, you know, looked pretty damn good against Holyfield. Yeah, yeah. How can he possibly win this fight? It was almost the reverse of the Zaire fight where, sure. you know, he couldn't lose. Yep. He couldn't yep. lose and he did. And this one, you know, 20 years later, he couldn't win and, and, and he did win it. I thought it was just amazing. And, uh, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna deny it. I had an affinity for Moore. I liked him. I liked Teddy Atlas. You know, I wanted to see them, you know, go on. Uh, but I must say, when when he landed that first right hand in that in that tenth round, it was mm -hmm. the tenth and ninth round, I remember he, he had lost every round. He lost right. every minute of the fight. Yep. First one, Moore backed up a couple of steps, and I was like, yep. mm, what's happening here? Then the next one, he's down and out. And I was like, yep. holy Jesus. I remember I wrote some ridiculous lead about, you know, you know, break out the Geritol, you know, the old man did it. Like, I mean, I was really like celebrating. It was amazing. Yeah. I had yeah. never seen anything like it. And when I got back to um, to Long Island, you know, I worked out in this gym and one of the trainers there came up to me and said, that fight was a fix. What are you talking oh my God. about? You can't knock out a guy with a punch that short. So I, I, I started, my, my blood started boiling. Uh -huh. So I said, come closer to me. So he started walking. I said, no, closer, closer. Come on, keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. When he was about six inches away, I hit him right in the midsection <laughs> with my fist. And he went down and he was like, oh, what did you do that for? I said, I wanted to make a point. There you go. I said, yeah. if you think George Foreman couldn't knock a guy out, I just knocked you out with the same point. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I, I, you know, people to this day ask me if it was a fake, and I always That's tell crazy. them the same story. I look, Michael Moore's upper lip looked like a right. put it through a shredder. Yep. So, no, it was not fake. Yeah, I got to tell you, though. I got to tell you, though, I was watching it on TV, unfortunately. And when it first happened, I thought it was a fake. Because, because the, the punch only let, travels about eight inches. Well, not even that. It was just so unbelievable. It was so unlikely. Right. right. That it couldn't possibly have been real. You're There's no way. Right. right. And it was, you know what? It was just one of those moments because there was nothing leading up to it that told right. you he could do it. Right. And there's nothing that happened after it that told you he should have done it. Exactly right. 
exactly right. right. I mean, his next fight against Axel Schultz. Terrible. Jeez. Terrible. You know, terrible. Yeah. Terrible. And, you know, he just, and then he wound up losing to Shannon Briggs. Uh, you know, and he struggled with some other guy. I think he went the distance with Stavaris. Yeah, he did. And barely beat him. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that, that was just his moment. Yeah, you know? exactly there right. There it was. And, that's it. and when you're, you're lucky enough to be at something like that, yeah, I, mean, right. I, I counted myself lucky to be there because it clearly was something that wasn't supposed to happen and did happen. Exactly right. So that was probably the greatest, well, you said one of the greatest moments, but I'm thinking uh, that you also covered probably the Hagler-Hearns fight. So was that the most exciting fight you've ever been at? Yeah, I didn't cover the Hagler-Hearns fight. I oh, was okay. sent out there. No, I was there. I was there. Okay. I was sent out there by my editor because they were kind of grooming me to be the boxing writer, but they, they sent Greg Logan to do the story. I did the okay. okay. I was sitting next to him, and, we were, and it was in the days where the media sat like right up on the apron. Right. You know, they hadn't yep. figured out yet we could sell these seats and push the media right. back and it would be right. So, and it was the first major fight I'd ever gone to in Las Vegas. I had done a bunch in, you know, at the Felt Forum and I had done the Hagler Ham Show rematch at mm-hmm. the Garden. Mm-hmm. But this is the first time I was at one of these outdoor stadiums, you know, in the, in the bright sunlight. And I was thinking, like, this must have been what it was like in Toledo, you right, know, when right, Jack right. MC fought Willard. Right, you know, right. it was like 100 degrees. <laughs> it was really cool. But then, you know, by the time the fight started, it's, it's now dark. And everybody was really excited. And I had watched Tommy Hearns, uh, you know, training during the week. And I could not believe the sound that his right hand would make against the hand pads of, uh, of Emmanuel Stewart. Not realizing at the time that, of course, you use that hand pad and you meet the fist right, to right, make that right, sound. Right, right. You know, I, I yep. think a lot of the younger guys don't realize that a, a, a pad workout is the biggest yep. little crock of shit in the world. Absolutely right. But yep. it, was very, it was very impressive to me at the time. Crack, boom, boom, boom. So I thought it was going to be a great fight. And um, the first round was so violent. I had never seen anything like it. My legs were literally shaking, <laughs> right? And everybody in press row was standing, you know. Which, you really? Know, was standing. We usually sit right. Everybody was standing at the end wow. of the round. And uh, I happened to be sitting next to Ed Schuyler, the right. AP guy, who was sure. a cynical son of a bitch and funny as hell. And he looked at me and just said, deadpan. He goes, you know, kid, they're not all like this. <laughs> <laughs> and he was right, because I haven't seen another one like that since. Sure. But, uh, yeah, that was probably the, the most violent, you know, first round, most violent three rounds I've ever seen. And that's and you're talking to a man who covered – every one of Tyson's fights. Yeah. You know, yeah. The amazing sustained violence by two, by two guys, not just one. Yeah. The amazing, whenever I happened to watch that first round again, uh, it seems like the, it seems like that first round is like eight minutes long. Doesn't it? It seems like it goes on forever. I wonder why that you is. Know how it's going to end. Yeah. Even though you know how it's going to end. You still think Tommy, I always think Tommy's going to win the fight in the first. <laughs> um, well, you, you covered a lot of Tyson fights. Um, tell me the ones that stand out in your memory the most. Um, well, Burbick fight, Burbick fight, because that seemed like preordained, you know, it, yeah, it almost yeah. seemed like, you know, this is a coronation, this guy's going to win. And uh, I must say, I, you know, I wrote this line when I wrote, I wrote a thing about the 30th, you know, we, amazingly, we passed the 30th or 20th anniversary of that fight. What was it? It was 1986. No, so it's 30th anniversary. Yeah, yeah. Two years ago for the Washington Post. If you recall the combination he knocked him out with, it was, it was a, it was a uppercut and then a double left hook. Yep. Right uppercut, followed by a le- oh, It was like something I'd never seen before. So it was like hearing the Beatles for the first time. It's like, oh, yeah. The hell yeah. throws that. Right, right. You know, it was an amazing. And then, of course, the, the, the spectacle of Burbick rolling over. He basically had knocked down three times by yep. one punch. Yeah, uh, and Burbick was, was a Burbick. tough guy. He, he was a very tough and a big yeah. guy. 
Yeah. I mean, a much, much bigger guy than, than, than you imagine until you see him up close. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very impressed by that fight. I mean, you know, 20 years old, he really, um, you know, I, I thought he handled the moment fabulously. And it was at the time when you could still deal with Tyson. Sure, you know, before sure. everything went bad. Yeah. Um, the other one, obviously, was the Spinks fight where things were just so ominous and sinister yeah. at that point. And I had just written the story of his, uh, of Robin Givens um, accusing him of, of yep. spouse yep. abuse, you yep. know, beating him up. Yep. You know, I had written it for Newsday. I think it was copyrighted around the, across the, the nation. Yep. He hated me. He would not fight. He hated me. Kevin Rooney, hated, they wanted to kill me. And um, he came into the ring that night. You know, and they, obviously everybody's got an entrance now and walk music. He had like just this this tuneless buzzing. <laughs> it was like so sinister. It was like you know, like like I don't know, like some monster was coming into the room. And uh, you know, Michael Spinks pretty much, uh, you know, I think he was arm weary from waving goodbye to his family and right. friends. He was like Norton against room. Foreman. Yeah. Yeah, he, I mean, he was a scared mess. to death. Yeah, yeah, he he was a mess. I remember asking him in in spring training. I mean, spring training during his training camp. I spent a couple of days with him. He was the baseball writer. And I said to him, you know, do you have any trepidation? Are you nervous <laughs> about this fight? And you know, the only Michael was he's goofy. You know, he was so really honest too. Yeah. I really loved him. He was very yeah. honest. Yeah. And he goes, Nah. He goes, I think about five minutes before. He goes, I, I think that should be sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he was, there was he no was doubt. Very, yeah. He was, he was always coming very the ring at those five minutes. Yeah, he was, he oh, was yeah. fucking nervous. But yeah. um, my overriding uh, uh, memory of that was that I had spent nine days in the in the pit that is Atlantic City for, you oh, know, like that lasted 91 <laughs> Yeah, really. Like, I'll never get those nine days back. That's right. Um, That's right. And I didn't think, you know what, honestly, and I've watched it many, many times, I think he won the fight. I think Tyson won the fight probably before it started, but he sure. actually won the fight with a left hook to the body. Yep. Before the night, and the last punch, I didn't even think it was a good punch. He kind of pushed them over. Yep. If you recall, it was an uppercut, and he kind of let, and Spinks is just like, you know, just get me out of here. You yeah, know, exactly go, right. Let's get our 13 million bucks and go home. Yeah, um, right. And, and right of course, the last one was the, the first fight with Holyfield. Right. Well, tell and me about that, that one. Douglas fight, but the first fight with Holyfield was incredible. Tell me about that. Um, well, you know, my, my son had just been born. My first child had just been born about a month before that. And I was really at war with the Tyson people. I mean, they hated me. I hated them. And I loved Evander. I just thought Evander was everything that you wanted an athlete to be, you know? And I remember the day of the fight calling my wife from Las Vegas and saying, I'm really depressed because this son of a bitch is going to win the fight. He's probably going to hurt Evander. And I said, and how am I ever going to teach? I remember saying this, and now it sounds like really corny and stupid. I said, how am I going to teach my son right from wrong when I like this can win this fight? Right, right. Like yeah. when the when the when the evil can win this right. fight, right, right, and she said, "Well, maybe it's not going to happen." I was sure Evander was going to get killed because I had come with Bobby Chez. Exactly, he exactly. He looked terrible, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And of course, I was only seeing the destructive part of Tyson. You know, not realizing, and I knew that you know that he wasn't the same fighter, having come back from uh, you know out of getting out of prison. But still, I just thought that they were worlds apart. Sure. And in the first round, you know, I knew one thing I knew about Tyson was that. He was at his best in the first round and then gradually went down after that. Well, he got the living shit kicked out of him in the first round. And I was sitting next to Jerry Eisenberg, you know, legendary. Sure. Yeah. Jerry Eisenberg's covered every Super Bowl and he's covered yep. every, you know, he may actually have been at the Sullivan uh, <laughs> fight. And still and kicking, I, yeah. yeah. I turned to him and said, Tyson's getting his ass knocked out tonight. And he said, huh. why are you saying that? I said, because he just lost his best round of the fight. Right. 
I said, it's not going to get better from here. And sure enough, man. And you know what? This is the first time I ever saw Tyson get knocked down. Obviously, he'd been knocked down by Douglas before. Holyfield knocked him down with a body punch, like in the fifth right, right. round. Yep. Tyson has still never gotten off the canvas to win a fight. And to me, that's, you know, that's the that's hardest thing for a fighter yeah. to do. And it's, the, and it's the best measurement of how tough a guy is. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Eisenberg, uh, a great old writer. And I, I, I don't mean old in a pejorative. Well, he's actually old. He's yeah, he is. Right, exactly. I'm just using that. You say that. I don't even think he'd take offense. <laughs> good. I remember reading him in the Star Ledger when I was a kid. And uh, all his, all his uh, boxing stuff. I remember reading him when he was chipping his, his, his columns into stone with a chisel. <laughs> exactly. Uh, now, Tyson uh, writes about you a bit uh, in his autobiography. Uh, have yeah. you, did you read it, by the way? Uh, I did. Okay. I, I, my, one of my great regrets is that I didn't write it. <laughs> did you get that? Did, was that offered to you as well? No, it was oh, not. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> no, it was not. <laughs> okay. Now, that's a, that's a big chunk of change right there, right? Yeah. Um, as someone, you covered him much closer, of course, than I did. In fact, that it was only at the very uh, tail end of things that I wrote about him at all. Uh, but um, for a long time, I've, I've rather liked him because he takes no shit from people and a lot of times says things the way that, that uh, they really are, uh, kind of like Holmes. Yeah. Uh, but, but I found after reading his autobiography that I like him less. And really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. That He comes off like more of a prick than I... Uh, than I want him to be it, in the sense that when he's describing all uh, the outlandish and terrible behavior he engaged when he was young, uh, mm-hmm. he comes off like uh, he's on one hand, sorry for them. And he's apologetic as what a jackass he was and mm-hmm. even writes words to that effect. And at the same time, he's bragging about them. About yeah, the, the, he, um, the craziest badass around. The right? kind of thing that you brought up with, with Larry before, it's tough to know uh, which one's the real Mike. I mean, when I right. first met him, I loved him. We got along great. Uh, he was, um, like 17 or 18 and I was mm-hmm. 28. So, but we hit it off because I was the youngest boxing writer ah, you know, right, he was right. dealing with Barney Nagler, who was, you know, right. <laughs> he, right. was he was a hundred years old, you know, and Michael Katz was probably in his forties or fifties at that point. Sure. Um, you know, so I was the closest in age to him and we hit it off. We really got along well. I would go up to Catskill and talk to him, told you we shot pool together. We went to dinner together. You know, we just hang out and like, Penn Station or, or Grand Central or whatever, and we really hit it off well. What happened was, um, as happens very often, when you become close with a guy that you cover, there comes a point where you have to write something critical. Right, yep, yep. And they, and they look at you, and this happened to me with Riddick Bowe, too, and they, and they say, I thought you were my friend. And I'm like, well, you know, I like you, but this is my job. Right, you know? exactly. I'm yep. sorry. You know, I had, yep. And what happened was I criticized him after the Tillis fight because I thought, you know, if he hadn't knocked down Tillis, I thought he could have lost that fight. Um, close fight yeah yeah and I, I you know i criticized him after the mitch green i in fact i remember writing the line that you know that tillis had given other heavyweights a, a blueprint of how to beat this guy even though he couldn't quite get it done himself mm-hmm. you know like he showed you this is how you right. better stand up to this guy and you can box him and you can do this um so they they started getting a little a little um a little antagonistic toward me the first one was rooney rooney like just lost his shit completely you know, he wanted to beat me up in an elevator once uh, in Atlantic City, but there were a lot of people there, and I guess he, he realized it probably wasn't a good idea. But um, then when Tyson hooked up with King, King hated me because I was constantly writing, you know, things critical of him. And, I did you know, not. They just yeah. fed off each other, and, and you know, we sure. just didn't talk anymore, you know. And, and, you know, by the time I wrote the Robin Gibbons piece, you know, that was it. It was open warfare. Uh but I saw other sides to Mike. He was very, he was a vulnerable guy. He really yeah. is. 
I mean, he came up to me once, I think it was at, yeah, I think it was at the press conference before he fought Pinkland Thomas. And he was kind of down and he came over to me and said, man, I don't have, I got no girlfriend anymore. I guess Robin had just broken up with him or something. They weren't married yet. And I, I said, oh, I said, I said, it should be easy for you to get another girl. He goes, oh, man, you know, they, they, you know, they all want your money. I don't think they really it's like me for who I am. You know, like these things really went through his mind. And sure, like, sure. And then uh, five minutes later, he was saying to Pinklin Thomas, I'm going to make you suck my dick. You're right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, I was friendly with Pinklin. He came over. He goes, you, I, he goes, you won't believe what I just said to me. And he, <laughs> and he was like shocked. This guy was, was a drug addict. And, you know, right, right. He had never heard anything like this. That another fighter would say anything like this. So there were two sides to Mike. And yep, I think he has yep. trouble controlling the good side. Right. Right. And I must tell you this. Let me just say this. Sure. In the past couple of years, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to Mike extensively. We've run into each other places, and we get along fine. And, you know, Good. everything that happened back then is gone. It's, it's finished. It's forgotten. Good. Good. But there was a time when things were really, really bad. And it was all because, you know, he didn't want to be criticized. And I was writing the truth. I, I told him, Don King is going to rip you off, man. Right, and I know right. I'm not the only one who told him this. Sure. You know, Customato had, had drilled this into his head from when he was a kid. And, you know, listen, there are things wrong with Customato and Jimmy and, and sure. Bill Payton. Yep. Yep. You know, they weren't the greatest thing. They were out for themselves as well. And I'm sure they, you know, they took advantage of Mike. But, you know, King takes everything, takes Larson right. to another level. Yep. You know, and um, there was just such a battle for control over this guy that anybody who, who was shining a light on that was out. You know, I was out. Mike Katz was out. The only one who was in was Mike Marley, who wound up going to work for Don King. Ugh. You know, but I mean, really, but I, I think I was out worse because of the fact that Mike liked me and thought that we that we were friends. right. Yep. That makes sense. Interesting. Wow. Um, you mentioned Michael Katz just now a couple minutes ago, which uh, brings me to the question. Were you a present for the famous uh, Borges Katz? <laughs> fight no, and no you weren't I, was not. I, wish I, had been. <laughs> I was gonna now, say do you wish you were yeah <laughs> there were two things that i missed with cats i was not there for that and I, in fact if i had been there i would have slugged borges quite honestly. really interesting yeah yeah because you know come on i mean michael cats over pretty harmless right you know with a cane and neck brace on a cane yeah. you're gonna fight him right right you know and i like borges too but no that that was out of line i, I was not there i was also i also <laughs> missed another great scene that happened in las vegas and I, I think i came in the day after this happened we were at dinner with cats was at dinner with a group of people and they were talking boxing and there were some guys at another table who were talking very loudly i think you know they were wall street guys or something yeah yeah, yeah. Suits, and cats just took a, an immediate dislike to them and told them to shut up and then <laughs> told them to fuck off so he walked over and he tried to fart on them. Holy shit. Are you kidding me? No, he turned his, his ample <laughs> oh, posterior toward them and tried to lift the flaps of his jacket. To wow. But apparently he couldn't fire for some reason. And uh, it turned wow. out that the guy's just like laughed at him. There was this crazy old guy in a neck brace trying to fart on us. Wow. And, uh, you know, they kind of like send him back to his table. And I missed that one. That was before the, uh, the bow. Uh, who was the Cuban guy? Jorge. Um, uh, yeah, Rodriguez. A really big dude that yeah. he fought. Yeah, yeah, he knocked him out in about. a couple of rounds. He yeah. turned out to be a really nice guy, too. Um, what the hell's his yeah. name? Yeah, was it Rodriguez? Gonzalez. Gonzalez, wasn't was it? Jorge Gonzalez? I forgot. He was like six. Five, you know, he was a yeah, baby. I know who you're talking about. Bald-headed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and she told me Jorge Luis Gonzalez. Yeah. Jorge Gonzalez. Yeah. She said he's a really nice guy. He grew up in Cuba, and he told me his only friends were like a, a rooster, a, a <laughs> lizard, and a. <laughs> I felt Jesus. terrible for the poor guy. Yeah, but 
Yeah, about yeah, Jorge Luis Gonzalez. That was yeah. Yeah, yeah but that was the fight where Katz tried to fart on this table full of Wall Street guys. Wow. Without might, success, unfortunately. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. I, I might have suggested that he take off the neck brace and let him smell that. It had to be worse than a fart. <laughs> well, right? he, he would have, but there's like a whole civilization living under it. Exactly right. I don't want to see what's happening under that no. neck brace. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with the longtime New York sports writer Wally Matthews. This interview is brought to you in part by the Film Noir Foundation. There's one word and a movie description that lets you know the movie's going to be cool. Noir. The Film Noir Foundation supports the history of film noir by restoring and preserving noir films. Find out more about the genre and support Movie Cool by going to filmnoirfoundation.org. You can sign up for their e-magazine or purchase some noir swag. Net proceeds go directly to preserving and restoring the genre that since the 1940s has been making movies cool. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm gonna, we're going to be going to home stretch now, Wally. I'm sorry to keep you so long, but I can That's listen okay. to you I'm, I'm all day. Uh, uh, going to the contemporary scene, unfortunately, we got uh, two rematches coming up in the heavyweight division. We have uh, Deontay Wilder going against 173-year-old Luis Ortiz. <laughs> uh, and we have uh, Andy Ruiz uh, rematching yeah. Anthony Joshua. Yeah. Uh, let's go in order and tell me what you think about the uh, Wilder-Ortiz rematch. I think I, I probably know what you're uh, saying. Yeah, Andy Wilder is going to win it. You know what? The, the first fight was sensational. One of the best things I've been at in many years. You know, I really... And I didn't expect anything from that fight. Right, it was right. Tremendous, and uh, my admiration for Wilder went up because yep, yep. He showed some balls. You know, yep. he really showed that he. You know, a lot of guys would have quit. I'm, you know, and again, I don't mean to pick on Tyson, but just having watched, you know, cover so many of his fights and seen the guys who beat him, I'm not sure he gets out of that seventh round. You know, I'm not sure Mike gets out of that seventh round. Wilder uh, showed some big balls. Yep. Yeah, he really did, and he's a, he's a, a he's a scary puncher. I mean. You know, we talk about guys being devastating, but this guy's a scary puncher. I mean, yeah. he hits guys and they are like out. Uh, he's an amateur. He's a complete yep. ranked amateur. Yep. You know, uh, you know, he could be outclassed by anybody, but if he hits you, the fight's over. So, you know, that's the kind of guy you like to watch because that's really, you know, you know, things can change in a blink of an eye. That's another thing Absolutely. I try to explain to the baseball writers. You know, when you cover a baseball game, you can get up, go for a cup of coffee, go talk right. to your buddy over there, take a yep. piss. Yep. But once the fight starts, you you don't take your eyes off the ring. Right. You know, you know, until it ends, whether it ends in thirty seconds or, or forty five minutes, yep. this is, you know, you ain't moving. Yep. So um I think he's gonna win because of what you said. I mean, Ortiz is an old guy. I think he's dangerous. He's a dangerous fighter, but I, I also think that his best shot, you know, happened in the seventh round of the first fight. You know? Yeah, I agree with all that. Well, there is uh man, I can't I hate to watch him fight because uh Love what you just said. He's just such an amateur. Ugly he makes ugly. Yeah, he makes young George hands, Foreman. Yeah. He's around. And he's just terrible. Right, right. He makes young George Foreman look uh, yes! polished. Right. Absolutely. He like he looks like you know Willie Pep. Right. Compared to Wilder, yeah. No, Wilder is awful to watch, but he's got that equalizer that you know you, you can't blame. Exactly right. You like watching him fight for that reason. Yep, absolutely right. And he did show a lot of balls in that Ortiz oh, fight, the yes. first, and one, also so. against Tyson Fury. It's true. Yep, absolutely you know, right. Tyson Fury's not a hitter, but but he was frustrating him, and yep. you know he almost he almost pulled that fight out of his butt. You know, in that last round. Absolutely right. I think the thing to me that was most impressive is he was he was launching bombs right up until the very last bell, like a, like a true puncher does, right? A That's true puncher right. thinks he's always in the fight, even if let's face it, most of the time he's not. When a when a puncher is down nine rounds, ten rounds, most of the time he's going to lose a decision. 
with yeah. guys who really believe in their power, like him and George and, and some other guys who are great punchers. Uh, well, they one, always uh, believe they. Fight that somebody just mentioned to me uh, yesterday, I hadn't thought about in years. Mike Weaver against John Tate. Sure. Yep. Absolutely yeah. right. Probably yep. lost fourteen rounds. But, yep. You know, I still got this, man. Yep. Exactly right. Up. So there's there's that reason to like Wilder, despite his amateur tendencies. Yeah. Right. It's like when you play eight ball. As long as the black ball's on the table, you're still in the game. There you go. So I think the more interesting fight to talk about probably is uh, Andy Ruiz and Anthony Joshua. First, if you would, uh, Wally, tell me what you think uh, happened in that first fight. A lot, there's lots of talk from uh, from some of our friends in Great Britain about Anthony uh, yeah. Joshua being off. Well, they had a lot invested in him. Yeah, exactly right. But tell you know, me what, emotionally uh, and financially. Yeah, but I agree. Tell me, me what you think happened me, in that first fight. Let me just say this. Whatever I say about Anthony Joshua right now is not personal. I like the guy. I don't really – I can't say I know him – but I've had several one-on-one -on -one interviews with him, and I had a long phone conversation with him, and I was very impressed. I mean, he's a very personable guy. He seems bright. He um, he talked uh, before when he signed for the fight to fight Ruiz. Uh, he was very conversant on the history of boxing in Madison Square Garden and how important it was to him to look good in this fight and make an impression in the United States. That being said, I was shocked, absolutely shocked at how flat he looked that night. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you or, you or I, if we were making our debut at Madison Square Garden and we didn't have to be fighting for the heavyweight title, I don't know about you, but I would have been sky high. You would think, would yeah. Been, Absolutely. This is, my, this is my moment, man. You know, this is great. This is why I'm in this business. I want to do this. This dude came out absolutely flat, no enthusiasm, fought backing up from the beginning against exactly. a guy who was built like Luke Costello. Exactly. You know, and I, <laughs> I said that to a guy, a boxing writer who's pretty prominent right now. And he looked at me and said, who's Luke Costello? Yeah. And I, said, I can't talk anymore. Exactly right. You got to um, walk away from that guy. Yep. Yeah. You're finished. Away. Man. Don't even yep. try. Um, yep. So anyway, I mean, he, he was not, you would think he would have come. And, and don't forget it was only days before, just days before. Right. Wilder knocked out Dominic Brazil sensationally in the right. first round. Yep. You would think he would want to come out and do the same thing against this guy. Yep. Right? Yep. Try to match it. He fought very passively. When he knocked him down in the third round, I really thought he lost the fight the minute Ruiz got up. The minute he got up, it's like something went out of Anthony Joshua. It was like, oh, shit, this ain't over yet. <laughs> now, somebody tweeted to me yesterday. It was a lucky punch. I was like, well, you out of your mind. You yeah, that's crazy. First of all, at this level, ain't no such thing as a lucky punch. That's right. Right? Yep. It's not baseball where you get a bad hop or football where, you, you know, thing goes off the fingertips of a, of a receiver or something. Right. A better fighter wins 99 out of 100 times. Yeah. Right? There's no lucky punches. You don't get hit by a lucky punch when you're a top flight professional. This guy just outgutted him, you know? Yeah. Anthony yep. Joshua did not want it, did not want to be there, did not want to be in a fight. He wanted to come out, knock this guy out, and go home again. I saw a lack of killer instinct in him. I saw a lack of desire to fight back when hurt. And the way the fight ended, Bill, he didn't want it anymore. This guy basically gave up the, the heavyweight title passively. And this is one of the arguments I have with Sonny Liston people. This is a guy that gave up the heavyweight title sitting on his ass. Yeah. You know, after the seventh round, he hadn't yep. even been hurt. You yep. know, I don't care. You know, the mafia was some, whatever, whatever it was. You don't give up the heavyweight title that way. This guy just walked away from his title. He basically told the referee, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> so, I mean, now, now the answer to your question is, who's going to win the second fight? Ruiz is going to win the second fight. Because this guy's not going to, you think this guy's going to toughen up in six months? What's he going to do differently? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think 
there there exists the hope among some that he was fucked up that night for some reason. Fucked and, up in what way? What was wrong with him? I yeah, talked to him the day before. He was, this, this <laughs> he was fine, right? Yeah. What was wrong with him? I don't know. Yeah, food well, poisoning? Yeah, what did he I have? don't know. Old? You know, one time, I will tell you this. I will tell you this. Let's go back to the young Tyson. Tyson had gotten cut slightly over his eye in sparring, I think by James Broad, a couple of days before. Uh huh. And I had asked Kevin Rooney, as we were all still getting along, you know, was this going to affect him in the fight? He goes, no way. He goes, fight day, we're ready to go no matter what. He goes, if my fighter wakes up with 104 fever the morning of the fight, by, tw- by 10 o'clock that night, we're ready to fight. Because that's it. You know, no excuses. This is right, what we're right. for. We trained eight weeks for this. So yep. I, wait, he was fucked. I don't, what, what could possibly <laughs> have gone wrong in Anthony Joshua's life? Between right, the Wednesday right. press conference and the Saturday fight. It looked to me like he just got hit back and said, what the fuck? I, exactly. Uh, you know what? Oh, but you know, this is the, the mystifying thing. He got up against Klitschko, and I thought that was – and maybe I misjudged. Maybe I gave too much credit to that. But I thought that was a great moment for Anthony Joshua. Sure, absolutely. You know, and that was a pretty vicious fight, and he got up and won it. But somewhere that desire went away. And I think once the flame goes out, I don't think it comes back. Yeah, and once you get once you've been knocked out once, you know it's romantic to think you say that these guys say, oh, "I'll never happen again." But that the opposite is true. Once well, yeah. you get knocked out or beaten, and you see that you survive it, it's like, "Ah, oh, fuck, I can lose again." Shit, I got You want to know the only guy that's really come back from a devastating knockout to be great? Joe Lewis. Yeah, sure. Right? I mean, yeah. name me another one. Whoever came back and did what he did. Well, George did, right? Yeah, but, but uh, you know what? The George knocked out by Ali. Wasn't a beating like Lewis? Kind of fell apart. Like he just fell yeah. apart. He yeah, fell emotionally. Apart. Yeah. And this is a guy that got his head together over those ten years and came yep. back a, a stronger, smarter man. Really did. I don't think Anthony Joshua in six months is going to come back any stronger or smarter than he was. You know. <sighs> yeah. I really don't. And he's come. He was there with an entourage. He had his own clothing line. He was, you know, he had a million guys on cell phones around him. It was like he had arrived without having done it. You know. Right. Right. So, the thing that's curious too about, and you mentioned the Klitschko fight, in other fights, recent fights, he'd been tagged and hurt. Well, yeah, and, Joseph and Parker, uh, yeah. who's the other guy he fought to come? Right, and uh, uh, Pavetkin hurt him uh, briefly yeah, and, in that and fight. And he fought passively; he didn't fight the same way he fought against Klitschko. Yeah, the Parker uh, fight, he fought pretty passively. I thought small guy too. Yeah, I'm, go- I'm going to. I, I say this over and over, and then people are sick of hearing me say it. I imagine, but I, th- I think one of his problems. Uh, outside of maybe his temperament, maybe he's just not built to be this kind of guy, is his trainers are trying to make him more of a boxer than he has to be, more of a stand-up technical boxer than he has I to know. be. Uh, and he's, you know, maybe. And but, he's got, you know, but he's got the equipment to just, like, George Foreman guys out of there, right? He's got that equipment where he can just bomb guys out, and he's on the outside boxing and jabbing and moving. What is, what is that shit? Well, yeah, right? I, I, I can, I'll go with that to a certain extent, but once the bell rings and you're in the fight – if you're a fighter by instinct, mm-hmm. you know what to do. Yeah, I agree. Right? You don't. You don't think, oh well, you know, he told me to do this. The hell with that. You know what to do. It's a survival instinct. Sure. You know, somebody comes up to you, you know, in the street. You know what to do. You don't look to your corner and say, "What the fuck do I do?" <laughs> you know, right. you know what to do. Sure, sure. If it's in you, I'm now. I'm, I'm starting to wonder whether it's in him. It might not be, or maybe it, you know, it just things happen. It might, it might have been at one time and not with it anymore. Dude. Sure. Think of the fights he was in. Think how sure. badly he was cut against Larry Holmes. Sure. Uh, think of how exhausted he was, was against Quawee. Think of how many times he hit Foreman and the guy wouldn't go. Right? But you yeah. dig down, you find a way. 
this guy could not find a way against a, a guy who was considered a club fighter. I mean, obviously, I think Ruiz is better than that now. Right, I right. think Ruiz is going to be better in the second fight than he was in the first fight. He could be, yeah. Because I think he's going to be a lot more confident. I, sure. you know, I think in the beginning, he was a little bit in awe of Joshua and of the whole setting mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. couple of rounds. I don't think he's going to have that next time. You know, I think he took, he took Joshua's best shot, you know? Sure, yeah. Knocked him down. He got up from it. What would yep. that tell you? If you were the fighter, what would that tell you? If I'm Joshua, I would, would tell me uh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> what would, if you were Ruiz, what would it tell you? It would tell you, you know what, I can take with this guy. Sure, it. sure, yeah. You know, so, yep. I, I, I mean, if anybody's going to go in confident this time, it's Ruiz. Sure, absolutely right. Yeah, Which, I, I, I unequivocally am picking Ruiz. You know, we can go back over this after the fight. And, you know, you, you are more than free to ridicule me. Believe me, I picked Spinks to beat Tyson. So I, I Did you really? <laughs> yes, I did because I thought that Tyson would – I thought Tyson was a normal human being right. and would be somehow mentally screwed up by the charges <laughs> of his wife and right, the right, upheaval right. in his life. And all, not realizing he was actually thriving on that. Sure. So yeah. anyway, well, I, I would say unequivocally, I think Ruiz is going to win the fight. I would be shocked if he doesn't, and I will be more than happy to come on and take my lumps. If he <laughs> no, but we all have those. Believe me, we all have those. I've got, I've got a whole list of fights that where I uh, made ridiculous picks. Hey, I picked uh, uh, Errol Spence to lose to Mikey Garcia, okay? Wow. And, he did, and Garcia didn't win a minute. So, no. that's, <laughs> so, so, so there you go. Um, but that's all great stuff. And, uh, and Wally, I want to thank you. We're uh, – just about uh, time is just about up. I could talk to you forever, but this has been really fun. Oh, we'll and I'm do gonna... part two another time. Okay, we will. Uh, thanks very much for joining me, and uh, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Pleasure was all mine, man. I love to talk to a guy who actually knows what he's talking about. And that will do it for another episode of the Ringside Seat Podcast. I'll be back uh, sooner or later. Until then, remember to patronize our sponsors, the Film Noir Foundation, 95 for Athletic Gear, Cleeter Race, and especially Ringside Seat Magazine. Remember, if you subscribe or renew your subscription, you get the 2019 annual book free. It's pretty damn cool if I say so myself. Uh, so re-up, bitches. Also, you can get issues one through seven for $5.99. Also a good deal. Thanks again to my guest, Wally Matthews, who you should follow on Twitter at Oyster Bay Bomber. You can also follow me on Twitter at William Detloff and Ringside Seat at Ringside Seat Mag. When Marciano was fighting... I wasn't even a thought in my father's penis. No, no, it's true, Richie. When he was fighting, I wasn't, I wasn't even a thought. And therefore, I didn't know what kind of fighter he was. And just last year or two, I started finding out a little bit about Rocky Marciano. But to leave you with a sense of relief, I think your brother was a great fighter. I think your brother went a long way and I would love to have met him. And then I'm, I'm sorry if you took that out of the wrong context. But I didn't mean no harm by doing it. 